Welcome to The Essential Sam Harris. This is Making Sense of the Foundations of Morality. The goal of this series is to organize, compile, and juxtapose conversations hosted by Sam Harris into specific areas of interest. This is an ongoing effort to construct a coherent overview of Sam's perspectives and arguments, the various explorations and approaches to the topic, the relevant agreements and disagreements, and the pushbacks and evolving thoughts which his guests have advanced. The purpose of these compilations is not to provide a complete picture of any issue, but to entice you to go deeper into these subjects. Along the way, we'll point you to the full episodes with each featured guest, and at the conclusion, we'll offer some reading, listening, and watching suggestions, which range from fun and light to densely academic. One note to keep in mind for this series. Sam has long argued for a unity of knowledge where the barriers between fields of study are viewed as largely unhelpful artifacts of unnecessarily partitioned thought. The pursuit of wisdom and reason in one area of study naturally bleeds into, and greatly affects, others. You'll hear plenty of crossover into other topics as these dives into the archives unfold and your thinking about a particular topic may shift as you realize its contingent relationships with others. In this topic, you'll hear the natural overlap with theories of free will, political philosophy, violence, belief and unbelief, and more. So, get ready. Let's make sense of the foundations of morality. Sam's most important thesis might be the one we'll be exploring in this compilation. It's possibly his most essential argument to grasp in order to understand his positions in the areas of politics, violence, charity, income inequality, and even atheism and religion. He first set the argument down in book form when he wrote The Moral Landscape in 2010. He also delivered a TED Talk which compressed the argument's central themes into a 15-minute presentation. That talk was entitled, Can Science Answer Questions of Morality? Naturally, both the book and the video are recommended to pair with this compilation. As we explore Sam's conversations on this subject from the Making Sense archive, we'll be treading into the exhaustively discussed philosophy of morality. There's an endless taxonomy of positions in this field. The ensuing picture can look like a wildly overgrown and gangly family tree, pointing to countless frameworks with names like consequentialism, utilitarianism, virtue ethics, care ethics, constructivism, nihilism, divine commandment theory, and deontology. But at the base of that tree is a fork that bifurcates the topic fairly sharply. It makes sense for us to start at that primary split and note which limb Sam climbs. Let's label the split with one branch marked as moral realism and the other as its negation, moral anti-realism. The path of moral realism contends that there are such things as objective moral truths. This would mean that, all things being equal, a declaration like the following is objectively true. It is morally better to give food to a starving creature than to withhold the food. It would mean that it's possible for moral statements like this to be right or wrong. And to take it even further, it would mean that the truth of this moral statement 
would remain true even if everyone were wrong and confused about it. For a moral realist, a statement like, slavery was morally wrong, is not simply a statement of opinion or the suggestion of a distaste for the practice. Instead, it's a contention that the argument has its foundations outside of culture, personal preference, or historical context, and that slavery was, is, and always will be a moral wrong. In philosophical jargon, you could say that objectively true means that it is true from the view from nowhere. You've likely already gathered that the other branch of the tree, the one labeled moral anti-realism, rejects the entire notion of objective statements in morality. It contends that when it comes to moral statements, we don't have any path to access this so-called view from nowhere, and that moral sentiment is always really a matter of evolved preference, species bias, historical bias, or cultural bias. This branch of ethics declares that the quest for a genuine foundation for our moral sentiments and emotions that rests outside of our biases will always result in failure, and that ultimately, all moral sentiments are inescapably subjective, no matter how convincing or widely accepted. Before we go too much further, it's important to note that the outwardly expressed moral attitudes and political positions of realists and anti-realists can strongly cohere. It's entirely possible, even abundantly probable, to find both a realist and an anti-realist arguing that slavery is morally wrong, and to find them both voting for the same political proposition to outlaw the practice. The difference between the two philosophies presents itself when they try to provide their deepest foundational basis for this moral judgment. The realist claims that slavery being wrong is a kind of objective fact, not necessarily exactly like the facts in mathematics or chemistry, but something a bit like them, or at least strongly informed and dictated by those facts, strong enough to be elevated to a factual moral truth. The moral anti-realist might agree that slavery is a moral wrong, but declare that ultimately, the foundations for that judgment are anthropocentric biases, evolved emotions, historical contexts, and strong moral instincts, not anything like a scientific fact. One name you'll hear often in this compilation, and in any discussion on this topic, is David Hume. Hume was a brilliant philosopher from Scotland who did his writing in the 1700s. He formulated what has come to be known as the is-ought distinction, which argued that you can't get an ought from an is. Or, to reword it in philosophical hypothesis form, Hume argued that there is no description of the way the universe is which tells us how the universe ought to be. This insight is what really fertilizes the entire branch of anti-realism in the field of ethics. You may have already guessed that Sam very confidently moves down the moral realism branch. And while he conceptually agrees with Hume's logic, he considers the confusion that it's caused, and its resulting moral subjectivism and cultural relativism, to be a kind of ethical and political emergency. Sam asserts that Hume's is-ought insight has led many people to conclude that science really has nothing to say about morality. The relativist argument suggests that because science pursues the is-side of Hume's distinction, and morality pursues the ought-side, 
Questions of morality are completely divorced from science and are purely subjective matters for which there is no objective arbiter. Sam points out that this attitude has rendered many otherwise moral and intelligent people mute and blind when it comes to casting judgment on the moral behaviors of others, and especially other cultures. Sam's approach to objective morality allows him to escape this moral paralysis, and, as you can imagine, his resulting utterances have landed him in hot water from time to time. Before we get to our first clip, it's also important to clear something up about Sam's brand of moral realism early so we can avoid a common misperception. Sam's argument in favor of moral realism does not imply that there is only one correct answer to a moral question. It also does not imply that he knows the right answer. It's only a contention that there are such right answers, or, more accurately, that there are right directions to move towards, that it's possible to objectively compare the moral value of two states of being and two states of the universe, and that it is possible to have real, objective confidence in those moral assessments, and that it's therefore possible to make genuine moral progress. But, and this is the very delicate part, it is entirely possible that one must move away from that right direction in order to navigate towards a higher peak of moral states. This is the wrinkle that starts to paint his moral landscape as a kind of mountain hiking adventure, with endless peaks and valleys, foggy hilltops, dangerous caverns, canyons, wrong turns, impassable swamps, and open upward clearings. What Sam argues is that morality, when properly understood, is a navigation problem which requires ever-improving methods to draw better maps, manufacture accurate compasses, and devise a good pair of binoculars so that we can have confidence that we are climbing to higher and higher ground. So, when we brought up our first example to show the split between moral realists and anti-realists, the idea that feeding a starving creature rather than depriving it, we added a tiny four-word phrase in passing to qualify it, all things being equal. But the funny thing about our actual lives and real-world situations is that all things are almost never equal. In an actual situation you might encounter in the world, the food in question may be your last bites and you'll starve to death if you feed the creature. Or there may be several starving creatures in front of you and you only have enough food for one of them. Or maybe this creature will devour two other healthy creatures if you feed it. Adding wrinkles like this and playing with all of these crazy variables tends to make things unequal and morally complex. But in an effort to distill and expound upon different moral frameworks and discover psychological and philosophical insights, philosophers and writers have been conjuring up fun, and sometimes diabolical thought experiments in situations like this to try to flatten or equalize certain elements and isolate others. We'll be hearing some fun thought experiments, and some not-so-fun ones, throughout this compilation. So, let's get to our first clip and introduce a famous thought experiment that we'll be returning to frequently. The clip is a conversation with Australian philosopher Peter Singer, who at this point seems to have the descriptor of world's most influential living philosopher, as a permanent addendum to his name. We'll begin with what has become a famous, simple thought experiment that Singer used in 1971 in Philosophy and Public Affairs, 
an academic journal that was little known at the time. The thought experiment goes like this. Imagine you have just purchased a nice pair of new shoes and you're walking by a pond. You know this pond well and you know its depth and probable dangers. It's very shallow. It only comes up to your waist. Suddenly, you see a small child in the pond flailing for her life and struggling. She's clearly in distress and in imminent danger of drowning. Do you run into the pond and rescue her, knowing that you will muddy your shoes and certainly ruin them? If you're waiting for a more complicated or challenging choice, it's not coming. That's the whole story, and that's the whole thought experiment. Nearly everyone responds by saying, of course I run into the pond. Who cares about the shoes? Now, Singer takes that answer and suggests that we, and he's speaking mostly about those of us in the affluent world, that we are all the time in a very similar moral position as the pedestrian walking by the pond. Let's say that the shoes cost $90. And let's also say you already had a pair of perfectly usable shoes at home. This purchase was a luxury. Go back to the moment when you were at the shoe store and looking at them on display. What if, instead of making that purchase, you knew that you could donate that $90 to a charity which had displayed solid data that it could use that money with a very high degree of probability to save the life of a child in Eritrea who would otherwise soon die? Is choosing to purchase the shoes anyway a choice that is morally equivalent to strolling past the drowning child and keeping your new shoes shiny and clean while she drowns to death in front of you? This arresting question has spawned a swarm of responses, supportive movements, clever challenges, creative edits, defeated frustrations, and counter-considerations. We'll be playing with Singer's Shallow Pond a good bit throughout this compilation to flesh out Sam's take on it and his particular run at the eternally vexing problem of morality. An obvious distinction to draw between the moment at the pond versus the moment at the shoe store is something like an act of omission versus an act of commission. In other words, is there a difference between failing to act and choosing to act if they result in the same moral outcome? Let's jump into the first clip, where Sam is speaking with Peter Singer in episode 48. What is moral progress? Is there an important moral distinction between acts of omission and acts of commission? I mean, certainly, we certainly act as though there were. So how does, and, this, and your, your famous shallow pond example put some pressure on this here. So how, how do you think about the difference between not saving a life that would be very easy for you to save and taking one actively? And this obviously also relates to end-of-life considerations of the sort you mentioned, the difference we, we seem to hold on to between removing life support and passively letting someone die versus actively killing them, which in, in many cases might be the more merciful thing to do. Yes. Yeah, so um, my view is that the, the distinction between uh, killing and letting die or between uh, acts and omissions, it's put in different ways, um, is not itself uh, of great intrinsic significance. Uh, it may be a marker for other things of more significance, like it may be a marker for motives, for instance. Um, so if somebody would say to me, uh, suppose I say, look, you should give to this effective charity. Um, 
let's let's be specific. You should give to the Against Malaria Foundation because it will distribute bed nets in places where there's a lot of malaria and where children die from malaria. And if you donate what I know you can afford to donate to the Against Malaria Foundation, they will use it to distribute bed nets and you will be saving at least one child's life. And, and that's that's factual, I think. That is a real organization and a real mm. example. Uh, and let's say the person doesn't do that, right? So then that person has, in one sense, let a child die. Do I think of that person exactly the same as somebody who traveled to uh, Africa, shot a small child and then traveled back to the United States? Of course not. Um, uh, I know that uh, there's a huge psychological difference in uh, th that person, that many of us are apathetic or don't care enough, um, don't feel psychologically drawn to help people who we can't even see. Um, but for someone to actually have the, the malice and the will to travel, to find a child, to kill that child, is, uh, it has to be a completely horrible, depraved person. Mm. So sometimes the distinction between acts and omissions will signal something like that. Why did this person go out of their way to kill? Whereas in the other case, they simply didn't do enough to save a life. Um, but then let's look at another case, um, the medical case that you mentioned. So um, an infant has been born uh, prematurely and has had a very severe uh, bleeding in the brain, a hemorrhage. The doctors do a scan of the brain. They find that all of the parts of the brain that um, are associated with consciousness, like the cortex, have been irreversibly destroyed. Um, now, there's two possible things that might happen in, in these circumstances. One might be that the doctors, after discussion with the parents, say, look, your child really has a hopeless future. They'll, they'll survive if we continue to treat them, but they'll just lie in bed um, all day and, and never be able to communicate with anyone, probably never have any conscious experiences at all, uh, have to be fed through a tube and so on. And, and, and the doctors will then say, and the parents will usually agree, so we could withdraw the respirator. Your baby is too small to breathe on, on his own. We can withdraw the respirator and your baby will die. And parents will typically say, if you think that's best doctor, then I'm okay with that. Uh, and the baby will die. Now that is seen as a letting die, uh, as an allowing to die, not as a killing. On the other hand, it might have happened that um, because it took some time to carry out the diagnosis, because the baby was particularly vigorous and so on, um, that the baby no longer needs a respirator. Um, so the prognosis is exactly the same. The baby is never going to communicate in any way, probably never going to be conscious. He's going to have to be fed through a tube and lie on a bed. Mm. But you can't bring about the baby's death by withdrawing the respirator. Um, and let's just say that there's nothing else you can do that will bring about the baby's death. The baby is otherwise, apart from this massive and irreparable brain damage, the baby is otherwise healthy. Now, I think that if you're prepared to say that it was justifiable to withdraw the respirator, you ought to be prepared to say it would be justifiable to give the baby a lethal injection so that the baby dies without suffering. There is no moral difference. In both mm -hmm. cases, you know exactly what the consequences of your action will be. In both cases, your intention is to bring about the death of the child. Your motivation is equally, I would say, equally good, equally reasonable in both cases. Um, so the means is, is, is really irrelevant. But Legally, of course, one is murder and the other is, well, maybe it's slightly gray in some countries, but anyway, it's, it's done in every 
neonatal intensive care unit in in every major city in the United States, right. um, and nobody ever gets prosecuted for it. So uh, it seems to be legally acceptable. Um, but that's, as I say, that that that's that's a case where I would think uh, we ought to be able to accept active steps on on the basis of saying it's it's no different from the from the other case. And certainly there are cases where the active step is the one that, that bypasses an immense amount of suffering, right? Where the passive Absolutely. one may... That's right. In other cases where there is some consciousness, not exactly the case I described, but where right. there is some consciousness, I do know of cases where people will say, you know, no, we can't actually take active steps to end life, but if the, the baby gets pneumonia, um, we won't give antibiotics. Um, and so then the baby will suffer a lingering death from pneumonia mm-hmm. over uh, days or maybe even a couple of weeks, um, you know, which is a horrible thing and a pointless thing to do if you've decided that it's better that the baby should die. Um, you know, you're, why let the baby suffer in this way? I want to go back to the issue of the, the shallow pond. So you admit that there's a difference. It would take a very different sort of person to go to Africa with the intention of killing someone than merely decline to buy a bed net when told on good information that this would save a human life. Those are very different people, but I think you're saying that it's natural for us to view them as different, and because it requires actually a, a, a different psychology to do one versus the other, they are different. But if we abstract away from those differences and talk about public policies and what governments should do, then the the act and omission difference shouldn't be morally salient to us anymore. Is that where you're headed with that? I'm not going to say that it shouldn't be at all morally salient because there are questions in what governments do in terms of the examples that they set. Um, But I do think it's very serious that governments allow people to die when they could prevent them, when they have the resources to prevent them. Mm. Um, uh, And uh, so I certainly think that the, the governments of the wealthier nations of the world should be getting together and uh, developing policies to eliminate preventable child deaths and preventable suffering from diseases. Um, They did make a reasonable effort in terms of the Millennium Development Goals to reduce suffering and progress was made. The number of children dying fell quite significantly during that period, as did uh, uh, the number of people in extreme poverty. Uh, And that's a good thing. But um, uh, I'm concerned whether sufficient progress is continuing to be made. I think uh, more progress could have been made even in that period, although some progress was made. Uh, and I think we should be doing more. Uh, and that applies to governments, but it also applies to individuals. I think all of us who can afford to donate to effective charities um, ought to be doing that because the governments are not doing enough. How do you view the ethical significance of proximity, if there is any. I mean, obviously, there's a, an immense psychological significance that this starving person on my doorstep is different, certainly more salient than the starving person in a distant country whose existence I know about, at least in the abstract. Presumably, you think that that difference is is far bigger than it it should be. But is there any ethical significance to proximity? the problem in your backyard as opposed to the problem an ocean away? Um, well, I'd say not to proximity in itself again. Um, we can perhaps be more confident about what we're achieving when things are in our backyard and we actually can see what's happening. We can talk to the people who are affected by it. But we do have very good research now about 
uh, effective nonprofit organizations that are trying to help people far away. Um, uh, so uh, there's organizations like GiveWell that mm. do research on effective charities. Um, there's an organization I founded called The Life You Can Save, uh, and it has a website uh, which lists charities that we've vetted and some some of it draws on GiveWell's research, some of it draws on other research, uh, so that uh, we recommend effective charities. And and if you can have a high level of confidence in the effectiveness of what you're doing, then it's not very different morally. As you correctly said, it is very different psychologically, but morally it's not very different from um, things that are going on in your backyard. Given that it is so different psychologically, I mean, presumably if, if I told you that there's a starving person by my front door today that I just stepped over on the way to this podcast because I was, you know, I'm busy. You would view me with something close to horror and repugnance and would be right to. But if I told you that I, I got yet another appeal from a good charity, which I didn't act on, you would just view me as a uh, more or less psychologically normal, if somewhat aloof person. Do you view our moral progress personally and collectively as a matter of collapsing that distance as much as psychologically possible so that we really can't put distant suffering out of sight and out of mind? Yes, I do think that's an indicator of, of progress. Uh, and it's, you know, the psychology is understandable, of course. Uh, our ancestors for millennia, for perhaps uh, hundreds of thousands of years, if we go back even could go back even to social primates before there were humans at all. Um, these ancestors lived in small social groups, face-to-face -face groups where they knew people and they would uh, help others and cooperate with them in various ways, but they had no relations perhaps even to people who lived across the mountain range um, in the next valley. Uh, and now suddenly, suddenly in terms of evolutionary time anyway, we live in a world where we have instant communications, where we have uh, very rapid delivery of assistance, where we have good ways of working out what is gonna help people uh, most effectively. And uh, our psychology has not changed uh, rapidly enough to cope with this. There's an interesting note about Singer's pond analogy and the idea that Sam raised about evaluating the kind of person who would stroll by a child drowning in a pond versus the kind of person who declines to donate to a charity. Singer originally wrote the pond story in an essay about a mass humanitarian crisis in East Bengal in 1971, spurred on by a civil war and a devastating cyclone. He presented the pond to argue for the presence of a moral opportunity, and perhaps for a moral obligation, of wealthy countries to intervene with food, shelter, and rescue. We can map that same character analysis that Sam suggested onto the national level and ask, what kind of country declines to feasibly rescue those in a foreign crisis versus what kind of country declines to offer generic foreign aid absent any acute humanitarian crisis? A screaming child drowning in a pond is an emergency but the slow drip of individual preventable deaths from hunger, illness, and poverty and spread across entire continents does not seem to present itself in that way or to expose the kind of people we are. But shouldn't it? What if we gathered all of those individuals into one location, like a sports stadium, 
and announced that a bomb would kill them all at midnight unless we easily defused it. That edit sounds extreme, but it only gathers the location of these preventable deaths to the same venue, and it makes explicit the imminence of their demise. Somehow that makes it feel more like a newsworthy emergency that only a moral monster would ignore. But again, Singer argues that this may actually be the situation that most of us are in today, if we only bothered to notice it. This is the deeply challenging work that the pond analogy does. So, let's stay with that last thread from Sam and Singer's conversation of proximity and the tension between psychology and moral philosophy. Like all moral dilemmas and thought experiments, you can start to tinker with the variables in certain ways that are designed to highlight how your moral intuitions might shift with each edit. For example, replay the pond analogy, but this time you see five children drowning instead of one. They're all at different distances from you, spread throughout the pond. You're quite certain that in the time it will take you to reach and rescue one of them, the other four will drown and die. Which do you go for? Assuming you're still willing to ruin your shoes. Maybe you decide that flipping a coin is the best method. But what if one of the children happens to be your child? Do you go for her no matter what? Waiting past the cries for help from an unfortunate, unknown child? How about if you knew all of the struggling children, and you know that one of them has a terminal illness and is unlikely to live another year anyway? Do you avoid going for that child? What if one of the children is known to be showing signs of being a scientific prodigy, and there are high hopes for her future, and she's likely to be a great benefit to humanity? What if you think all of these factors are just too vulgar, and you simply go to whichever one happens to draw you first while you close your eyes? Would that method favor the child who happens to yell the loudest? If we keep our eyes open and just follow our instinct, would we inevitably end up being drawn towards the child who's the cutest? Or even the child who looks a little like us and reminds us of our kin? We can keep playing these kinds of games forever. We could even make it nearly identical to the famous trolley problem, the thought experiment which ties five people to a railroad track while one person is fastened to a separate track. In that now well-known nightmare, you're given the choice to divert an out-of-control trolley towards the one rather than the five by flipping a switch. In our pond, we could imagine that four of the children are clinging to a rapidly deflating life raft and they could all grab hold of it and be dragged to safety by you while one isolated child is drowning by himself a hundred feet away. Is there a right choice for problems like these? We're going to go to our second clip to focus on the suggestion that there are right answers to these questions. This guest will argue that our intuitions lead us to actions that are compromised by our evolved psychological biases to favor creatures with which we can empathize. To return to the issue of proximity, it's certainly easier to empathize with someone who's close enough to be in our visual and auditory field and whose screams we can hear, rather than a distant, nameless, faceless, voiceless child. We know that it's also easier to empathize with a single child whose name and story we know over a huge number of distant, nameless children who you'll never meet. In fact, as you'll hear Sam and this next guest point out, this specific aspect of our psychology is even more curious, where our ability to empathize with a specific starving child is reduced 
when you simply place the same child amongst the company of thousands of others just like him. The next guest is Paul Bloom, a professor of psychology formerly of Yale University and now with the University of Toronto. Bloom has had several wonderful conversations with Sam, and this is their first, which came just after the release of Bloom's book with the provocative title, Against Empathy. In it, he argues that our much ballyhooed capacity for empathy is not the clean moral panacea which it is sometimes advertised to be. In fact, it may often be more of a bug than a feature when it comes to our moral reasoning. Here is Sam with Paul Bloom from episode 14, In Cold Blood. You've come down very much on the, really, a side of a controversy that most people didn't even know existed, which is that empathy, in many cases, is harmful and is not a good piece of software if you want to be a a reliable moral actor in in normative terms. So tell me about what you've said about empathy, and let's, let's get into the details. So I always have to begin with the most boring way ever to begin anything, which is with talking about terminology. Because... People use the term empathy in all sorts of ways. And I think my position is easily misunderstood. Mm. If you think, some people think empathy just is a word referring to anything good, compassion, care, love, morality, making the world a better place, and so on. Under that construal of empathy, I have nothing against it. I'm not a monster. I mean, I want to make the world a better place. Other people use the term empathy very narrowly to refer to understanding in a cold-blooded way what's going on in the minds of other people, understanding what they think and what they feel. And I'm not against that too, though, and we might want to talk about this. I think it's morally neutral. I think very great and wonderful and kind people have this sort of cognitive empathy, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. But so do con men, seducers, and sadists. Right. Um, you know, bu- bullies are, one way, reason why bullies are very good at being bullies is that they exquisitely understand what's going on in the heads of their victims. Yeah, yeah. That's often misunderstood, by the way. We should just footnote that, that this form of cognitive empathy that you've just distinguished from the other form that you're about to describe is something that psychopaths have in spades. When we talk about psychopaths being devoid of empathy, it's not the empathy that allows us to understand another person's experience. That is not something that prototypically evil people lack. In fact, they, as you just said, they use this understanding to be as successfully evil as they can be. That's exactly right. So, so um, you know, another term for cognitive empathy is social intelligence. And I like that way of talking because it captures the point that intelligence is an extraordinary tool. Without it, you know, we couldn't do any great things. Mm. But in the hands of somebody of malevolent ends, intelligence could be used to make them a lot worse. And I think that, that's, that social intelligence is exactly like that. Um, mind reading, another term for it, is, is a tool that could be used any way you want it. And the very best people in the world have, have tons of it, and so do the very worst people in the world. So, so the, the sense of empathy I'm, I'm, I'm using, and this actually matches what most psychologists and most philosophers, uh, how, how they use the term, is empathy is in the sense of what Adam Smith and David Hume and other philosophers call sympathy. And what it refers to is feeling what other people feel. So if you're in pain and I feel empathy for you, I will feel to some degree your pain. If you're humiliated, I will feel your humiliation. If you are happy, I will feel your happiness. And you could see why people are such fans of this. 
it, it, it brings me closer to you. It dissolves the boundaries between me and you. And there's a lot of psychological research showing that if I feel empathy towards you, I'm more likely to help you. Dan Batson has done some wonderful studies on them, and I don't contest that at all. But the problem with empathy, and one of the problems with empathy, there are many, but the main problem is it serves as a spotlight. It zooms me in on a person in the here and now. And as a result, it's biased, it's parochial, it's um, short-sighted, and it's enumerate. Uh, it's be, one way I put it is, it's because of empathy that governments and societies care so much more about a little girl stuck in a well than about millions or more people suffering and dying through climate change. Mm. It's because of empathy, at least in part, that we, we freak out and panic over um, mass shootings, which, however horrible, are a tiny proportion of gun homicides in America. 0.01%, mm. roughly. Yeah. I mean, if, so if you ask people, they would say mass shootings are the most terrible things there are. And, I, you know, I live in Connecticut. Newtown's not that far away. After the Sandy Hook killing, people were, including me, were deeply upset. But intellectually, if you could snap your fingers and make all the mass shootings go away forever, and then you did that, nobody would know based on the homicide numbers. Yeah. The, 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 it's so tiny. So it misdirects us. It, it causes us to focus on the wrong thing. It causes us to freak out at the suffering of one and ignore the suffering of a hundred. In, um, in, in one of your books, I forget which one, you, uh, you, you talk about the study where uh, we care more about one than about eight. Yeah, and Paul, you say something to the effect of, if Paul, there's ever a non... That's Paul Slovic's work. That's right. That's right. Um, some wonderful studies. And also uh, somebody named Ritoff and other investigators have done this since. Hmm. And... You know, and, and, and you described as that if there's ever a non-normative finding in psychology, that's it. And so I, I think we could, I think there's many more examples like this that we could say, we could look and say, and, and say as rational people, well, you know, a black life matters as much as a white life. The life of an ugly person who doesn't uh, inspire my empathy matters just as much as a beautiful person who does. And the lives of a hundred matter more than the life of one. Especially, and this, this is the, the amazingly non-normative finding from Slovak's work, is that especially if those hundred include the one you were caring about. So you can set up this paradigm where you show a reliable loss of concern when you add people to the group. So you start with one little girl whose story is very emotionally salient and People care about her to a maximal degree, and then you add her brother to the story, and people care a little less, and then you add eight more people to the story, keeping the same girl, and people's care just drops off a cliff. That's truly amazing. It's not one attractive girl versus a hundred faceless people. It can be the one attractive girl along with the hundred, and you care less. It, it's a magnificent and horrible finding. And... And, you know, I, I've, I've long championed the forces of reason and rationality and moral judgment. I think far more than many social psychologists that were capable of that. And so there, there's an interesting duality here. On the one hand, our gut feelings push us towards the one girl and not the hundred, even if the hundred includes the girl. Mm. On the other hand, we're smart enough to recognize when we put it in this abstract way that that's a moral mistake. In some way, you could view the moral mistakes caused by empathy 
as analogous to the mistakes in rationality that people like Danny Kahneman have chronicled, mm-hmm. where, where you see people just, you know, you get these puzzles and you ignore the base rates and you get things all messed up. And then when, it, when you step back and look at it and do the math, you realize, wow, that was a mistake. My gut led me in the wrong way. I, uh, visual illusions are another case. It looks this way, but it isn't. You take out the ruler and you measure it. And although the lines look like they're different lengths, they're the same. So we have this additional capacity to do this, both for things that connect to the external world like vision, but also for morality, where we have standards of reason and consistency. And we could use this to say, wow, our empathy is pushing us in the wrong direction. Yeah. So now, do you see us correcting for this in a way that is adequate to the, the magnitude of the moral error? Or is, is our way of correcting for it more haphazard than that? Uh, our way of correcting this is always haphazard. But the analogy I make is with racism. So, so we know we have racist biases. Many of us have explicit racist biases. But there's a lot of evidence for implicit racial biases, uh, biases that we don't know we have even but that influences us in all sorts of ways. So what do you, so suppose if you think racism is okay, then there's not a problem. But suppose, you know, as you and I do, we think racism is wrong. So what do you do about it? Well, the answer is not you try harder. You know, we we know trying hard doesn't work for these sort of biases, but there are different sorts of fixes. So in fact, for, for, for biases, often there's technological fixes. One story, this may be apocryphal, but it's, it's a good story, is that symphony orchestras were heavily biased in favor of men because they, they, they claimed that, you know, the people making judgments who were both men and women said men just sound better. They have stronger, more powerful styles. So what they did was they started auditioning people behind a screen. Mm-hmm. And this is, and then, then, the, and then the, the sex ratio became more normal. So this is an example of you, you got a bias, you don't like it. And so you try to fix the world so it doesn't apply. And I could imagine similar things happening with with empathy, where you change laws and policies so that empathy plays less of a role. Bloom and Sam agree quite a bit on a lens of morality and how we ought to work to discover and then mitigate our worst built-in psychological impulses when making moral decisions. But to underline the distinction between what Bloom was calling cognitive empathy, and other forms of concern for others, let's note the subtitle of Bloom's book, which is The Case for Rational Compassion. Bloom's argument is a fascinating counter to the common advice to trust your gut when it comes to difficult moral decisions. Gut versus reason, or heart versus head, are colloquial phrases that people use to express the tense boundary between our evolved instincts and our rational moral reasoning. We're going to continue to trace our way along that boundary in this compilation, and this time, we'll jump back towards the philosophical side of things. To return to our initial taxonomies of moral philosophy, we should zoom in on another major fork in the tree. This is the split between consequentialism and deontology. Consequentialism focuses its moral analysis on the likely outcomes of actions, while deontology, by contrast, sets out principles and laws which ought not be violated regardless of the outcome. The classic example used to put pressure on that point is this one. Let's say that you follow a rule that lying is morally wrong. In fact, lying is always morally wrong, and one should never do it. This is a deontological rule. Now, 
Let's say that you're hiding Jews under the floorboards and a group of Nazis knock on your door and ask if you're hiding any Jews. Should you violate your rule and lie to them? The consequentialist, of course, urges that you should, because the terrible consequences of telling them the truth outweigh any kind of harm you might be doing by lying to the officers. Consequentialism can be thought of as a kind of elaborate pro-con list where we imagine counterfactual universes and weigh them against each other. If you listen to the full conversation between Sam and Singer, you'll hear them debate the morality of the United States dropping two nuclear bombs on Japan to end World War II in this way. To evaluate the morality of this action, the consequentialist would attempt to add up the harms, benefits, and outcomes of this action against the harms, benefits, and outcomes of not dropping the bombs. There are weaknesses and vulnerabilities to consequentialism, though. First, one can't be sure of when to stop adding up the benefits. For example, is the modern, thriving Japan a consequentialist outcome of the bombing somehow? Or is that unrelated and too far removed to be considered in our analysis? If the bombs hadn't been dropped, would the harms of a prolonged, expensive, and bloody conflict in Japan be a certainty? How many lives lost in that counterfactual universe would have to add up to the body count of the bombs themselves? An equal number? Consequentialism tends to be such an elastic framework that the brainstorming sessions of harms and benefits which flow from an action can be nearly endless. A cynical view dismisses consequentialism as being capable of justifying anything if you just wait long enough. And then, of course, there's the deeper philosophical question which we initially raised, whether something can be objectively labeled as a moral good or not. If not, we're stuck with subjective lists of pros and cons which are rendered meaningless. But we'll save that big question for a later clip. Our next clip is going to stay with a specific brand of consequentialism known as utilitarianism. There are several flavors of this framework, but in general, the view follows the adage that we ought to make choices that maximize flourishing and minimize suffering. This next guest is Will McCaskill, who, along with Peter Singer, has led the charge for a movement called effective altruism. Recall Singer's initial formulation of the shallow pond and our suggestion that the money from the shoes could be donated to a cause which is likely to save a child. This is the movement which is attempting to deliver on that promise with impressive amounts of research and analysis. To underline how far this line of thinking could go, consider this response to Singer's Pond from the moral philosopher Anthony Appiah. He offered a somewhat tongue-in-cheek answer to the question of whether you ought to run in and ruin your shoes to save the child, saying, no, what you should do is let the child die and run to the nearest pawn shop and take the money and donate it to a charity that saves two lives. What he's doing there is poking a bit of fun at the cold math of utilitarianism to perhaps show a potential flaw, or at least a major clash with our psychological impulses. In this next clip, you'll hear Sam defend consequentialism from this type of critique with a classic and somewhat gruesome example where he puts you in a doctor's waiting room. Let's go to that clip with Sam and McCaskill, where they play around with the notion of the fungibility of the value of human lives when we attempt to build our flourishing versus suffering ledger lines of analysis. We're going to jump into the moment where McCaskill gives his pitch for the moral opportunity for those in wealthy nations to give. 
You'll hear Sam give a lengthy response where he lays out another key feature of moral analysis, which is the difference between evaluating an act versus evaluating a person's moral character, which is yet another useful way to discuss the strange tension between psychology and moral philosophy. This comes from episode 44, Being Good and Doing Good. I think even if you endorse kind of pure utilitarianism, just should maximize the amount of good you can do. I think that just for practical reasons, that doesn't mean that you should, you know, keep donating until you're living on $2 per day. Hmm. Um, not if you're in um, a rich country. Because the opportunities you have to spend, let's just solely focus on money. So there's lots of other ways of doing good. But if you were to say, okay, I'm going to live a normal... Um, you know, keep going in my own job and just donate as much as I can until I'm earning like very little. Firstly, I think, you know, that's going to damage your ability to earn more later. It means that um, there's risks of yourself burning out, um, which is, I think, very significant. If you're going to, you know, wear the hair shirt for three years and then completely give up on modality altogether, that's much Mm. worse than just donating a more moderate amount, but for the rest of your life. And then also in terms of, yeah, your productivity and your work as well, it's just actually really important to ensure that you've got the right balance between how much you're donating such that you can do it positively. And then finally, in terms of the influence you have on other people, I think if you're able to, you know, if you're able to act as a role model, something that people actually really aspire towards, think, yeah, this is this amazing way to live a life and look at these people are able to donate a very significant amount and still have a really great life. That's much more powerful because it actually might mean that many other people go and do the same thing. Mm. And if just one other person does the same thing as you do, you've doubled your life's impact. It's like a very big part of the equation. Mm. Um, whereas if you're walking around utterly miserable, just so you can donate that extra, that last cent to fight global poverty, you know, you might seem a little bit like an anti-hero. Um, and I think that's a very important consideration. So I actually think that when it comes to the practical implication of Singer's ideas, it doesn't lead you to donate everything above you know two dollars per day um instead you you kind of max the optimal amount is actually quite quite a higher level which is um, maximizing the amount of good you'll do over the course of your lifetime Mm. bearing in mind the ability to say get promotions or change career earn more the value of your time ensuring you're productive and ensuring you're the good role model to other people as well yeah this this is really a fascinating area and it's it's going to get more fascinating because it's it just becomes strange the closer you look at it. Now, I, I'm totally convinced by your opportunity framing. And while I had heard it put that way before, your emphasis on that is very attractive and very compelling. And, and so, let me just to remind our listeners, so that by dint of having the resources you have, and if you're listening to this podcast in any developed country, you almost by definition have vast resources relative to the poorest people on earth. And this puts you in a position to quite literally save the child from the burning building any moment you decide to write a check for, I mean, what, what is it that actually, in your view, is sufficient to save a life using yeah, the best so charity? This the point? best guess from GiveWell donating to Against Malaria Foundation is $3,400, right. statistically speaking, on average, save a life. And they're keen to emphasize that you know, that's just an estimate. Um, a lot of kind of assumptions go into that and so on, but they're very careful, very skeptical. It's the best, you know, estimate that I know of. So, so that, that opportunity is always there. And I guess 
one of the challenges from a philanthropic point of view and just a the point of view of one's own maximizing one's own psychological well-being is to make that opportunity as salient as possible because obviously writing a check doesn't feel like rushing across the street and and grabbing the child out of the burning building and then being rewarded by all the thanks you'll get from from your neighbors but if you could fully internalize the ethical significance of the act something like that reward is available to us at least that's what you're arguing i'm convinced that is a good way of of seeing it and and so therefore taking those opportunities more and more and making them more emotionally real seems like a very important project for all of us who have so much the other side the the the, the singarian obligation side i think is is fraught with other issues and so i just want to explore those a little bit the problem we're dealing with here is that we are beset by many different forms of moral illusion where we effortlessly care about things mm-hmm. that are in the scheme of things not all that important and can't be goaded to care about things that are objectively and subjectively when you actually connect with the lives of the people suffering these conditions the most important problems on earth and the, the classic example is you know a girl falls down a well it's one girl it's one life and what you see is wall to wall coverage on every channel for 24 hours tracing the the rescue, successful or otherwise, of this little girl, and yet a genocide could be raging in Sudan, mm-hmm. and not only do we can't we be moved to care, we so reliably can't be moved to care that the news organizations just can't bear to cover it. I mean, they they give us a little bit of it just because it's their obligation, but it's it's five minutes, and they know that's that's a losing proposition for them anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's the situation we're in, and that seems like a bug, not a feature of our ethical hardware. For me, it, it exposes an interesting paradox here because because the the most disturbing things are not reliably the most harmful in the world, mm-hmm. and the most harmful things are not reliably the most disturbing. Mm-hmm. And you can talk about this from the, the positive or negative sides. We can talk about the goods we don't do, and we can talk about the harms people cause. And so this is an example from my first book, The End of Faith. To find out that your grandfather flew a few bombing missions over Dresden in the war mm-hmm. is one thing. Mm-hmm. To find out that he killed a woman and her children with a shovel mm-hmm. is another. Now, he undoubtedly would have killed more women and children mm-hmm. flying that bombing mission. But given the difference between killing from 30,000 feet by dropping bombs and killing up close and personal, and this is where the paradox comes in, we, we recognize that it would take a different kind of person with a very different set of internal motives, intentions, and you know, global properties of his mind and emotional life to do the latter versus the former. So a, a completely ordinary person like ourselves could be, by dint of circumstance, detached enough from the consequences of his actions so as to drop the bombs Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. from the plane. It takes a proper psychopath or somebody who was pushed into psychopathy by Mm -hmm. his experience to kill people in that way with a shovel. And to flip this back to philanthropy, it is a very different person who throws out the appeal from UNICEF 
casually ignoring the fact that he has foregone yet another opportunity to save a life. That person is, is very different from the person who would pass a child drowning in a shallow pond because he doesn't want to get his shoes wet. And so the utilitarian equation between you know a life, life and life, mm-hmm. which Singer's obligation story rests on, doesn't acknowledge the fact that it really would require a, a different person mm-hmm. to ignore suffering that was that salient or to perpetrate, in the case of, of creating harms, suffering that's that salient. And yet we're being asked to view them as equivalent for the purpose of, of parsing the, the ethics. So I think um, there's an important distinction between assessing acts and assessing a person, assessing a person's character. And I think normally when we go about doing model reasoning, most of the time we're talking about people's characters. So is this a good person in general? Can I trust them to do good things in the future? Is it the sort of person I want to associate with? Whereas model philosophers are often talking about acts. Um, And so I think Singer as well would agree that it's in some sense a much worse person who kills someone than who, like intentionally kills someone than who just walks past a drowning child. Um, And you'd entirely agree with that because in part the idea that it's much worse to kill people intentionally is a far greater model wrong in our society than merely failing to save someone. I agree that it's kind of, I would also just be very troubled by someone who wasn't moved by the more salient um, causes of suffering um, in human in some way. Um, but when we think about model progress, I think it's absolutely crucial to pay particular attention to those causes of suffering that are very kind of mechanized or have the salience stripped away from them. I mean, if you look at the orders that were given to SS guards in terms of descriptions of um, how to treat Jews in the Holocaust, every step has been taken to kind of remove their humanity, to turn it into completely banal evil. And it's through that almost mechanization of suffering that I think humanity has committed some of the worst wrongs in its history. And I think that that's also going to be true today. So when you look at practice of factory farming, or if you look at the way we incarcerate people. So, you know, if we saw a country, as happens, that was um, regularly, uh, flo- you know, flogging or inflicting corporal punishment on its criminals, you'd think that's absolutely barbaric um, as a practice. But yet putting someone in a prison cell for several years um, is a worse harm to them. I think it's like considerably worse, the punishment we're inflicting on them. But it doesn't give us that same like emotional resonance. Mm. And I think Insofar as there's this track record throughout human history of people doing absolutely abominable acts, not realizing that it was morally problematic at all, even taking it as common sense, precisely because the ways in which the harm caused had been stripped away, had been made sterile, as were the case of the SSR guards, that should give us pause when there's some case of you know, extreme harm that has this property of being made sterile should make us worry, are we in that situation again? Are we just thinking, oh yeah, this is co- common sense, normal part of practice, but only because of the way that things have been framed. And the really powerful thought, I think, from you know, Singer's arguments for thinking about extreme poverty is, well, maybe we're in that situation now with respect to us in the West compared to the global poor. So if we look back to think of Louis XVI or something, or imagine some monarch with who's incredibly wealthy with his people starving all around him. Thank God, that's absolutely horrific. Mm. It doesn't seem so different from the way that we are at the moment. 
everyone in a rich country in the US or UK is in the basically most of the population are in the richest 10% of the world's population, even once you've taken into account the fact that money goes further overseas. I imagine most of the listeners of this podcast are in the top few percent. If you're earning above uh, $55,000 per year, you're in the richest 1% of the world's population. Mm. Um, And this is a very unusual state to be in. It's only in the last 200 years that we've seen such a radical divergence between uh, rich countries and the poorest countries in the world. So it's not something that our moral intuition, I think, is really caught up to. But in the spirit of thinking, well, what are the ways in which we could be acting in a way that seems radically wrong from the perspective of future generations, but that we take for common sense? I, you know, I think Singer's definitely put his finger on a possible candidate, which is the fact that the fact that we, you know, have what, by historical standards and global standards, is immense wealth, immense luxury, and it's currently like common sense or normal just to use that on yourself rather than to think of it as, um, in some sense. Um, resources that really belong to all of humanity. If you're getting a sense that the demands of maximizing flourishing with detached mathematics are just too impossibly high, and that a utilitarian mindset requires an attitude which unrealistically, or even inhumanely, strips oneself of the fruits of psychological reward or luxurious creature comforts, then you are successfully approaching the tightest knot in moral philosophy— Before we leave Sam's conversation with McCaskill, we're going to quickly jump to a brief moment where Sam attempts to marry the psychological aspects of a person's character with the philosophical framework of consequentialism by reminding us to broaden the scope of important knock-on effects in society that should be considered. This equation is key to threading the needle of this conversation and understanding how everything can ultimately resolve to consequences. I mean, this has been my my gripe with certain caricatures of utilitarianism or consequentialism, which is so, so the idea that if you can sacrifice one to save five, well, mm-hmm. then you should, you know, you, mm-hmm. you go into your doctor's office for a checkup and he realizes he's got yeah, five exactly. other yeah. patients who need your organs. So they just grab you and, and steal your organs and, and you now are dead. But if you just look at the the larger consequence of living in a world where at any moment any of us could be sacrificed by society to save five others, none of us want to live in that world. And I think for a good reason. And so you have to grapple with a much larger spectrum of effects when you're going to talk about consequences. So you just you just acknowledged one here, whereas that to be the kind of person you want to be who is really going to do good in the world and to be tuned up appropriately to, to have the right social connections to other human beings. You may, in fact, want to be the kind of person who privileges love of one's friends and family over a more generic yeah, loving yeah, kindness yeah. to all human beings. Because if you can't feel those bonds with friends and family, that has moved enough enough of the moving pieces in your psychology so that you're not the kind of person who is going to care about Mm -hmm. the suffering of others as much as you might. Yeah, so another example, I mean, another case given by, first given to me by Derek Parfit is, um, you know, your grandmother who you love very much, you've got a very close relationship with her. Um, When she dies, you just throw her in the garbage. Just Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, questions, well, who's that bad for? You know, it's not bad bad for her because she's no longer with us. but again, it just seems like there's this, as a matter of human psychology, doing that is very inconsistent with what seems like genuine regard for mm. 
um, that person. But so, so but I think that, that's yeah, yeah worth acknowledging. So it's easy to cash that intuition out again in the form of consequences, in my view, which is yes, it's not bad for your grandmother because she's presumably not there to experience anything, but the sense that there's something sacred about a human life or the sense that, mm-hmm. that one's love of a person needs to be honored by an appropriate framing of their death, mm-hmm. that is good for everyone else who's yet mm-hmm. living, right? Mm-hmm. And if we just chucked our loved ones in the trash, that would have implications for how we feel about them. And how we feel about them is the thing that causes us to recoil from mm-hmm. treating them that way once, once they've died. There, you can hear Sam make room for the consequences, and perhaps pro-social, morally positive consequences, of the sentimentality of irrational, empathetic psychology. Thus far, we've heard Sam engage with thinkers who are in general agreement with him on the framework of consequentialism, and who are, in principle, in agreement with the suggestion that we can place items on the weighing pans of a moral scale with some degree of objectivity. In other words, They agree that states of the universe can be called morally good or bad with an objective methodology. All of this has rested on the possibility that we can be reasonable and rational about our moral lives and think our way towards the moral action before we take it, even if it runs completely counter to the strong evolutionary forces of psychology, which might push us towards rescuing one of our kin over four strangers or even when it asks us to bypass the purchase of fancy new shoes that are sure to impress our friends in favor of a thankless, anonymous, distant, charitable donation. We're going to explore a bit more of Sam's moral landscape and his analogy of the navigation problem before this compilation is complete. But first we're going to hear from someone who is rather skeptical of the power of individual moral reasoning to truly preempt or overpower the lure of psychological emotions. This is Sam's first conversation with the moral psychologist and author, Jonathan Haidt. The backstory behind this first recorded conversation is amusing enough to share here as a bit of a digression. After the release of his book, The Moral Landscape, Sam issued a public challenge to anyone who could offer substantial enough criticism aimed at his central argument in a short essay. If the essay persuaded Sam to recant his view, the winner would receive $20,000. Falling short of that, he would select the best essay and publish it on his website with a prize of $2,000, even if it didn't fully persuade him. Upon hearing this, Haidt wrote a somewhat snarky article aimed at Sam, which claimed he was very unlikely to change his mind. The article followed some previous incidents of clever sniping from both men, and Sam finally invited Haidt onto Making Sense to clear the air and try to have a more useful engagement over their differences. We're going to jump into the episode at a much later point, after they've already recanted some of their linguistic run-ins. This pattern of attempting to directly engage with critics and would-be intellectual enemies is something that Sam has tried to do at various points of his public career, with varying degrees of success. It's fair to say that the effort with Height has been more than worth it and very fruitful to both of them. They've engaged in several interesting conversations on the podcast, and their styles and analysis do seem to cohere well, even though their respective emphasis and moral analysis pulls in different directions. You'll hear the two men grab that rope and start the tugging, 
as each attempts to assess if man really is the rational animal, as Plato once famously claimed, or if man is the rationalizing animal, forever deluding himself that he reasoned his way into moral positions, which are really better explained as post-hoc justifications for psychological preferences they had in the first place. This is Sam with Jonathan Haidt from episode 31, Evolving Minds. Let's move to morality proper, because this is really where you've made your biggest mark, and it's an area where you and I both agree and disagree. So, as you've already said, you're very skeptical about the power of moral reasoning. And you, you don't say that we never change our attitude or the attitudes of others through reason, but you insist that we do this far less often than we think or than anyone hopes. You also claim that you claim that most of our seemingly rational talk about morality isn't what it appears to be because we reason like lawyers and re not really like moral philosophers. So most of our reasoning, and by lawyers you mean that most of our reasoning is is really in the service of justifying moral attitudes that we arrived at intuitively. And so we're we're simply in the business of defending and and marketing these intuitions, you know, and, and just and not fundamentally getting down to some kind of ethical bedrock. And you, you move from these observations about the intuitive roots of our moral attitudes and the resulting diversity of opinion morally among people to conclude that science really can't hope to talk in terms of moral truth. Firstly, have I summarized that basic skepticism accurately? Yes. I would only add that my skepticism is not about reason in general. It's about individual reason, the power of an individual to reason. If you set systems up correctly, and this is what's so brilliant about science, if you set systems up correctly so that you have institutionalized disconfirmation so that each scientist who's totally motivated to prove himself right goes out there and, and uh, proves himself right, but then you have others to push back. And this is a reasoned process. We, you know, we really do make our points not by threat, not by force, not by money. We make them by making arguments. And over time, the system sorts out the better from the worse. So if you think about reason as an emergent property of a system that's set up well, then I'm a big fan of reason. As for morality, yes, I, I think that the basic psychology that we're, what we're finding in social and cognitive psychology is motivated reasoning. Um, and we're just not that good at weighing the evidence on both sides. Rather, what we're really good at is we start with a proposition and we ask, must I believe it? Am I forced to believe it if you don't want to believe it? And then we look for evidence that it's wrong. Or more typically, you start with a proposition, you want to believe it, you search for evidence that it's right, you almost always can find it, and then you stop thinking. So that's why I'm not a big fan of individual reasoning. I think we're kind of like neurons. We're not that smart as individuals, but you put us together in the right way, you get a brain. Right. But you seem to hold the things we can be right or wrong about in the moral sphere as different from the facts that science treats. Correct. Right. That's, so right. That's an, another fundamental distinction between us. Yes. Yeah. So just introduce this concept of, of moral dumbfounding for a second. So one of the first, one of the, uh, so I, when I started uh, my research in graduate school at Penn and then as an assistant professor at the University of Virginia, originally I thought that reasoning and emotion were both inputs into moral judgment and either one could dominate. That's kind of a dual process model. And, and mm -hmm. Josh Green ha is the main proponent of such a model. But I, I, I kept failing to find that reasoning would work as, as I expected it to. And I kept finding that sort of the people's gut feelings tended to drive the reasoning. 
And so I would I would make up these stories that would pit reasoning uh, about harm versus gut feelings. And so one of the stories was about a brother and sister who are on vacation, from summer vacation from college. They're traveling alone together in France. They, they're staying in a cabin by the beach. They decide one night it would be interesting and fun if they tried making love. They use two forms of birth control just to be sure. They enjoy it, but they decide not to do it again. They keep that night as a special secret between them, which makes them feel even closer. What do you think about this? Is that okay for them to do it? And almost everybody says no. And then the experimenter would say, okay, well, why? Tell me why. And at that point, everybody comes up with a reason. Nobody says, well, gosh, I don't know. I can't explain it. Everyone comes up with a reason. Uh, but the experimenter would say, well, okay, yeah, you know, true, birth defects, that, you know, that's a good reason. But, you know, if they're, if they're using birth control, like if they could be sure that there's no baby to come, then is it okay? And nobody would say, oh, yeah, sure. If there's no baby, then it's okay. Rather, if you knock down the reason, they say, oh, okay, yeah, well, let me see, let me see. Uh, okay, oh, how about this? Yeah, yeah. And they come up with a second reason. You mm -hmm. knock that down. And after you do this a few times, then eventually people say, gosh, I don't know. I, I can't explain it. I just I just feel it's wrong, and I don't, I don't know. I can't explain it. So that's moral dumbfounding. And that I took as evidence that gut feelings can support a moral judgment, even in the absence of any articulable reason. Right. Right. But what I always read you as suggesting there, and, I, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that you move from that fact to suggest that there clearly can be no truth of the matter, right? The fact that people will hold... Wait, wait, wait. No, I don't think I ever do that. I would not say that moral dumb, the, the existence of moral dumbfounding tells us nothing about whether or not there's moral truth. You and okay. I disagree about moral truth, but that's unrelated to dumbfounding. That's more of a philosophical argument about the different kinds of things that are true. Well, that, that's an implication uh, I wouldn't want you to draw, and if you don't draw it, that's great. Let's talk about, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm so, very fond of this term, uh, anthropocentric versus non-anthropocentric truths. Should we, right. we talk about that? Well, let, let me just connect it to another term that people are aware of, moral relativism. Would you consider yourself a moral relativist? No, but I'm also not a moral realist. So no, I'm not a moral relativist. I think there are moral truths, but they are not the same as the truths of chemistry and physics. So, and just to get everyone up to speed on what we just said, this idea, the idea of moral relativism is, I, you know, the, this can mean many different things, and it's a little confusing. I mean, in some ways, even my own view can be called a version of moral relativism, because I believe that there are multiple distinct and yet incompatible possible good lives that people could live or, or good societies that could be built. In my book, The Moral Landscape, I say that there are potentially many and even a potentially infinite number of peaks on the moral landscape. Yep, there, I, I like that metaphor and agree with that argument, yes. But that, that doesn't undercut the, the reality of moral truth because there are many ways to be off a peak and down in a valley that is purely a, a, an area of misery. So the fact that there are many right answers to a question doesn't mean there, there isn't a difference between a right and wrong answer. But the phrase moral relativism is more usually applied to people who think that just to speak in terms of moral truth is to engage in, in one or another species of, of fallacious thinking, that there are no truths that, that are really true in the sense that things can be scientifically or historically or economically true. And I now, I, I now recall that your, one of your mentors was or is Richard Schwader, the anthropologist, is, and I've actually collided with him both in private and in, in print briefly on this topic. And he always struck me as, as a relativist of the latter type. Is that true? And I mean, do you have a difference in your orientation? Philosophers have gone round and round about relativism and realism for a long time. And while I was working with Rick Schwader, uh, as, when I was a postdoc at the University of Chicago, the first thing he had me read just about was a, uh, an essay by the philosopher David Wiggins. 
um, which completely changed my thinking about this, and I've never had a reason to to change it since then. Um, Wiggins simply introduces this distinction between different kinds of facts. There are anthropocentric facts, which are true only because of the kinds of creatures we are, and there are non-anthropocentric facts, which are true regardless of the kinds of creatures we are, regardless of whether we ever evolved or existed. Mm. So the Earth is the third planet from the sun. If aliens come here, they'll find that. Uh, copper is a better conductor of electricity than aluminum. It doesn't matter if, if we never invented electricity. That is still true. So the kind of truths that you talk about in the moral landscape, you're mostly focused on the truths of the natural sciences. We all agree those are true. Those are true facts. They're true regardless of human participation in them. And the question is, are moral facts the same kinds of facts as those. You say yes, I say no. But that doesn't make me a relativist because there are many other kinds of facts. So um, uh, the, 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 my, the clearest case for me is facts that emerge because of our interactions with each other. So if I say to you that silver is more valuable than gold, now I'm perfectly free to say I like silver more than gold, but that's not a claim about a fact. But I'm going to tell you right now, Sam, gold is more valuable than silver. That's not my opinion. That's a fact. Now, that's not a fact of the natural sciences. It's not true in other planets. It's a, it's an emergent fact because we interact with each other in certain ways. Well, it's also it's socially constructed. Yeah. Mm, no, it's no, no, no. Social construction means um, that we we attach certain meanings to it, like you know, cancer is a mark of moral depravity or something. You know, people have thought that was a social construction. This is an emergent truth, and emergent truths can be true even if people don't even know that they're true. So markets can yield prices, and uh, prices can move, even if people aren't really aware of the movements of the prices. Well, yeah, but that, but that's true, but markets are still social construction. I mean, so, like, money is a social construct. That's right. So market, right, true. Markets are human creations, but as markets interact, they generate economic facts. Let's take a more challenging one. Should women have equal political rights? Um, we all say yes. Now, is that a fact, a fact true across species that any intelligent creatures, if they have sexual divergence on a different planet, they'll, it'll be true for them? Is it true? Is it a fact such that even if we go back 10,000 years ago, in which women almost never had equal political power, they were all wrong, all human societies were wrong, wrong, wrong until the 1960s. This is a more challenging case, but I would argue this. Um, given the way we live now, where the basic unit of politics is the individual, there is no good reason, and it would be uh, unethical to deny women equal political access and political participation. But for thousands of years, people didn't live that way. People lived in which, let's just say in many societies, the family was the basic unit, and there was a division of labor. The man was the political actor. The woman handled uh, more the domestic sphere and gathering while the man did hunting. So if you just accept that that's the way hunter-gatherers lived, now, can you say that it is a fact that women should have had equal political power? They should have been president at all the political... They were just wrong that they denied that. So I don't think that makes any sense. I think that women's equality is an emergent fact about the way we live now. It is not a fact like like chemistry, like, you know, like, like, like copper being a good conductor. What do you think? Do you think women's equality is a fact like the superior conductivity of copper? Well, well, not quite. It's certainly a more complicated fact. But here's why I think this, this bright line between anthropocentric and other truths doesn't get you very far. Because one, 
my interest in morality extends beyond what is even human. I'm talking about what possible minds there are in this universe. I mean, just what what sorts of experiences are there to have given just the nature of consciousness and how it arises in a universe. So if we wind up building conscious computers that can suffer, how can they suffer and how wrong would it be to build those things? If we can change our brains in the future in such a way as to give ourselves different moral intuitions, right? So not only to live more faithfully by the intuitions we have, but to then ask the question, what intuitions should we have, right? If we could change ourselves into a species of perfectly matched masochists and sadists, would it be wrong to do so? I think those are coherent questions, but they kind of fly the boundaries that you're setting for anthropocentric and other truth claims. And I, I, so for me, it's, it's really, a, you know, I view it as a, the strong claim I want to make about moral truth and its connection to science. And again, science in the most open-ended way. I mean, the science we will be talking about 10,000 years from now, whatever we are, if we're around to talk about anything. The connection is, I mean, you can, you can even forget about the word morality, forget that we have even have this term, forget that we've evolved to the point we have, and just ask yourself, what possible experiences are there in this universe? And that just faces us with a navigation problem. We have, we're, we're at our starting point, wherever we are now or in the future, and if we move one way, we'll become both individually and collectively reliably more miserable. And then who knows how good human life or beyond human life can be given perfect cooperation, creativity of a sort we can't even currently imagine, technology that has no downside, free energy, you know, everything is powered by starlight and we just are living in some perfect condition that we may, may in fact never attain given our, you know, humble apish origins, but is in fact possible for minds differently constituted than our own, right? So we're living in that space and we're, we're navigating in that space of, of possibility. And then so when you ask a question like, well, should women be given the vote or should they, be, should they live as equals to men politically? Then I think that, yes, the moral landscape allows for two, very likely allows for incompatible, but possibly equally flourishing conditions where in some societies, women, for whatever reason, decide they don't really care about politics and they just want to be the best moms possible. And they have made that choice for reasons in this counterfactual history that are slightly different than our own. And, you know, I could imagine some conditions still a flourishing there that is every bit as good as the one we are attempting to navigate toward. But given where we are and given our history, I would agree with you that obviously having women be the political equals of men is the right thing. And everyone else in our current world committed to some other project there is obviously doing it for reasons that are that are rationally and, and ethically indefensible and creating some rather again I'm happy to use you know these certainty terms creating rather obvious harms in their own societies both to the boys and the girls and the and the women and the men Elsewhere in his writing Haidt has used the analogy of an elephant and a rider to further explain his view the analogy says that we only imagine that we are guiding and steering the beast, but really, it's taking us places of its own accord while we convince ourselves that that's where we wanted to go all along. The elephant, in this case, is the beast of psychology, made up of all our biases, conformities, gut reactions, evolved moral emotions like disgust, romantic and sexual attractions of all kinds, and our genetic makeup. Of course, as you also heard, 
Neither Sam nor Height completely reject the other's view. Sam, with reference to the influence of psychology in our moral reasoning, or Height, with reference to the power of moral reasoning to precede or occasionally supersede psychological biases, especially in terms of group dynamics and social systems, many of their desired political positions cohere. The importance of their debate and difference, as much as there is one, might be about exactly what kind of interventions might be recommended to achieve those desired outcomes. But let's stay with their final thread in that clip, where Sam and Height touch on our question of moral realism and the kind of true things that could be said about moral claims. Let's put another crucial piece of Sam's moral landscape argument into play, which he began to explain in that last clip. Imagine a universe of ultimate suffering. This is a universe that has conscious creatures capable of suffering, and all of their suffering is at a maximum level. There is no silver lining to this. There is no respite. There is no lesson to be learned at the end of it. And it's actually worse than just pain. It's true suffering of the deepest kind. If you're imagining something awful that you lived through and are now grateful for years later, You're not imagining Sam's nightmare universe accurately. There is no beauty to be discovered within the suffering. It is just pointless, infinite, maximal misery at all times, forever. Nice, right? Let's call this Universe State A. Okay, now let's go to Universe State B. This universe is in a state just like Universe State A. But for one second every hour, all the conscious creatures cease to experience any suffering. They get a rest from the misery. And in that second, they experience calm, tranquility, and beauty. They are happy to exist. And then, of course, the suffering commences. Sam contends that Universe State A is bad, and Universe State B, while still really bad, is ever so slightly better than Universe State A. And thus, any move that could be possible to transform State A to State B is a good one, and represents a morally good move. If this is not what you mean by morally good or bad, he doesn't know what you're talking about. So, the claim that a universe in State A is bad is a kind of inarguable moral fact that sets the ground level in his moral landscape. It's as low as you can get. And now, state B, and every other state of every other universe containing consciousness, is somewhere above that lowest altitude. But starting with this ground truth, where the word bad takes on a recognizable and undeniable meaning, Sam imagines the navigation away from it and towards potentially infinitely high peaks to be the work of moral progress. And again, to reiterate a crucial point and avoid a common misunderstanding of his view, recall that there are many peaks and many valleys to find. Two very different cultures or individuals may be on equally high peaks with very different practices. But what should also be clear by this point is that Sam reminds us this fact should not confuse us and cause us to not be able to recognize clear moves towards and away from the dreaded ultimate misery ground level. And of course, one need not be standing on a high peak themselves in order to recognize these facts. 
When we bring our language out of his landscape analogy, these expressions can be heard as moral judgments, condemnations, or admiration for the actions of others and for other cultures. This, as I'm sure you can imagine, has led Sam to make some enemies where this kind of utterance is taboo. The denial that any objective evaluations of the moral states which are produced by the behavior of different cultures is usually called cultural relativism. A strict cultural relativist may not love how another culture addresses a moral question in society, but they privilege the status of culture in the generic sense and claim moral ignorance as to the objective moral status of their practice. It is this claim of ignorance as to the moral evaluations of certain practices that Sam takes direct aim at in his work in moral philosophy. He contends that out of a sometimes understandable abundance of caution and hesitancy to critique the practices of other cultures, or even due to the romanticization or glorification of foreign ancient natural practices, we have pretended to not have a measure of objective confidence in some rather outrageous moral activity. We tend to shrug at the moral evaluation of certain behavior so as to not offend or trespass upon strong taboos against the critique of cultural practices of religion, especially when we might carry our own guilty conscience or histories of moral error. We'll come back to Sam's analogy of the landscape a final time to discuss what kind of methodology one might use to navigate those kinds of evaluations after our next clip. But first, we'll play with the idea of cultural and historical relativism. One of the interesting challenges to a view of objective morality is the case of morally evaluating a practice within its historical context. Can we judge the practice of child sacrifice objectively and call it morally wrong when it was practiced in ancient Mesoamerica? Or how about American slavery in the 18th century? Or the death penalty for homosexuality in 16th century Europe? Can we judge the actions themselves as immoral, but the people themselves as moral? Does that distinction make any sense? Let's listen in on a clip where Sam engages with someone who provides a bit of a defense for historical context, or at least urges us to consider just how difficult it is to judge moral actions given the historical context in which they've emerged. This particular clip is from 2015, and it rehashes some political entanglements from that time which are still very relevant. In the clip, you'll hear Sam wonder out loud if it's possible for someone to want the wrong things. This is the shorthand way of appealing to the notion of an objectively wrong moral direction, regardless of the way one's psychology may be pushing them, or in the case of the particular example Sam uses, the way that one's culture or religion may have hijacked one's psychology to desire the wrong thing. This is really the center of the controversial bullseye that Sam's confidence in objective morality often leads him to hit. The guest is Dan Carlin. Carlin hosts a podcast called Hardcore History. And though you'll hear some tension in this clip between him and Sam, you should know that Sam is a huge fan of Carlin's historical work. We'll absolutely be recommending some of our favorite episodes of Hardcore History in the outro of this compilation. This is Sam with Dan Carlin from episode 11, Shouldering the Burden of History. I'm coming up against certain taboos which are just um, kind of amplify misunderstanding. So 
the taboo around criticizing religion as, as opposed to other sets of, of ideas. Uh, that is, is something that, that people are, are really uh, biased against tolerating. They think there, there's something indecent just as a matter of principle in criticizing people's deeply held religious convictions, whereas you, there is nothing wrong with criticizing their, their false ideas about history or biology or anything else. And um, there's also the, a lot of white guilt and, and understandable guilt over the history of slavery and colonialism and, and the, the, just the, the sheer uh, wealth imbalance between uh, the, the West or the developed nations and the, the um, developing ones. And so a criticism of Islam in particular gets mapped onto those concerns about uh, inequalities in our world and, and you get a um, – you, you get a lot of confusion. It's interesting to look at cases that pass through this filter more or less undistorted. So, for instance, for me, the case of North Korea is pre- you get you get pretty perfect convergence from people in the West, you know, liberal or conservative, on the wrongness, the ethical wrongness of the regime in North Korea. And I think more or less everyone would acknowledge that if there was something we could do to liberate the North Korean people without too much bloodshed, we should do it. It's, it's kind of like – it's a really – it's a hostage crisis. We have, we have a, a couple of maniacs or you know, generations now of maniacs with bouffant hair holding millions of people hostage, starving some significant percentage of them and brainwashing them with an ideology that is um, – it just clearly uh, totally out of register with with any real understanding of what's going on in the world. I mean, these people think they're a master race. They th- they're, they're essentially a cargo cult armed with nuclear weapons. And um, I think it's a uh, so if you if you talk to liberals and conservatives about this, that the the, re- the real problem is just a practical one. There is no way to resolve this hostage crisis without massive loss of life. They have nuclear weapons. That's one problem. But even short of that, they have so much artillery aimed at Seoul that there's no way to do it without massive, without a horrendous war. So, But if we could wave a magic wand and change the situation and, and disabuse these people of their, their mythology and their, their, their intellectual isolation and, and uh, cancel that regime – Everyone acknowledges that would would be a good thing, and yet, if you try to move that to a a similar consideration of of Islamic theocratic regimes, jihadist regimes, or, or Islamist regimes, uh, things begin to break down under the influence of political correctness. And so, I I just I put that to you as a potential starting point, and and uh, await your words. Well, let me suggest a difference. Um... Take the North Koreans, for example, and we talk about brainwashing. I think your analysis was right on. But here's the thing. If all of a sudden they allowed an actual free election in North Korea, it'd be interesting to see the results. It'd be interesting to see if the brainwashing took hold to such a degree that people there voted to continue the regime. Or if all of a sudden, you know, like uh, like the emperor having no clothes, we would see that all these people are actually more savvy and are able to resist the brainwashing more than we think and vote to do away with the regime. That'd be interesting to have. And the reason I ask that is because when I think about these Islamic, um, the, the extreme regimes, so for example, the sorts of state that a, an ISIS-ISIL is trying to put together, for example, or even let's just say one that, that's been a more um, functional 
and, and, and valued member of the world community, let's say, Saudi Arabia. If all of a sudden you had free and fair elections in Saudi Arabia that included all adults able to vote, be very interesting to see what the results were. And so when you when you talk about the ability of whether it's liberals or uh, let's call them paleoconservatives or anyone else to look at a situation and agree that a North Korea is a tragedy and wouldn't it be nice if those people are freed? And doesn't this also apply to these um, Islamic regimes? I'm not sure. I remember getting an email from a woman and she lived here in the West, but she was Islamic. And I had made some comments about women in burqas and, and the rights of women in some of these countries. And, and I had used that as, as a particular you know, touchstone. And she wrote me back and she said, listen, no offense, but this is what you don't understand not growing up in this society. She says, I want this. I want this burqa. And she called it something else. There's another word for it. She says, and, and I was raised in a society where we began as little girls to look at this and couldn't wait until we got to the age. And she said, now my views may not be representative and certainly different regions and different areas have different feelings about this. But from the traditional, you know, little town I came from, I didn't see this as an imposition on my freedom. To me, it was a rite of passage and it was it's a cultural change for me to see it as some sort of inhibition, because here in the West, I think she should have the right to wear a miniskirt, which is not something that might have occurred to her. Um, and so, in other words, if you could go to these areas that that the ISIS folks are beginning to take over or lose, as the case may be. And ask what the people there want. It'd be very interesting whether or not they want to be liberated. And, you know, you can have two kinds of liberation. You can have the pie in the sky one where we say we're going to liberate you and in 50 years you're going to be like Germany is today. Or we can liberate you and you Sunni folks will be living under a bunch of Shiites who take advantage of you all the time. I mean, it, it's not a perfect world where we can offer these people a panacea either. So they're often making the same sorts of choices in their heads that we're making at the ballot box, which is, are we going to get a lot of difference if I vote for this Democrat or this Republican? Nothing seems to change. So you start to vote for lessers of two evils. I think those people would react in a similar way. Um, so, so I guess what I'm saying is there might be a difference between a, a country where it really does look like all these people are captives, like North Korea, and another country like Saudi Arabia, where you're just not sure if you actually polled people in a free poll, if they would say they wanted to continue to live like that or not. There may be a cultural difference. It's hard for us to notice. Yeah, well, I think this this goes to the foundational issue of whether anyone can want the wrong things and whether there's a place to stand where you can say that, they, in fact, they do want the wrong things. They have been brainwashed, as I said, in the case of North Korea or uh, some, some concatenation of causes has led them to – has trimmed down their worldview – in such a way that that doors to human flourishing are, are closed to them or closing to them. And someone outside that culture, someone who has not been brainwashed by it, could open those doors. So, for instance, you know, literacy for women. Uh, I think uh, that is an intrinsic good, and it really doesn't matter how many women you can get to tell you from behind their burqa that they don't want to read. They don't know what they're missing. It's possible not to know what you're missing. And, it's, and I think... Uh, once you strip away political correctness, you have to agree that being born a woman in Afghanistan any time in the last 30 years was to be unlucky, was to, was to be an unlucky woman by and large. Now, it's not to say that you couldn't find one happy woman there who, if, if given a chance to sample all of the human experiences on offer, would for whatever reason realize that she is happiest in a burqa, not reading. That's possible. But – uh, that's that's not how uh, most of the women there came to live the lives they're living. These lives have been imposed on them. And 
for the, for the most part, when you when you listen to the expressions of relief and humility and clarity uh, that that you get around this notion of 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 wearing the veil in the Muslim world. I don't hear it too much around wearing a burqa, but wearing uh, lesser veils like the hijab. You are hearing that as a response to the thuggish misogyny of the men in those cultures. Women are treated like whores and considered to be whores if they're not appropriately veiled. They are, you know, groped and, you know, in, in most of these societies beaten for not being appropriately veiled. It's just it, when you have that that kind of stigma around the empowerment of women or just the, the sheer – just the, 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 the mere sexuality of women and when you have every man's notion of his own honor predicated on the chastity of the women in his life, well, then there's – yeah, it's, it's, it's two sides of a coin and no, no doubt many women feel relieved to be appropriately veiled in those cultures. And I'm also not holding up the miniskirt as the ultimate example of – uh, psychological health with respect to variables like youth and beauty and and female sexuality, etc. There's, there's, there, there may be interesting things to talk about there, but I don't think there really is much daylight between these theocratic societies within the Muslim world. I'm not saying all of the Muslim world fits this description, but when you're talking about the Taliban or ISIS or any of those uh, contexts and something like North Korea, which we recognize uh, rather readily to be a, a condition of brainwashing in a political cult as opposed to a religious one. But what do you – and see, this is where I always have have my issues with that. If somebody were going out there and making – and when I say somebody, I mean somebody in our government. If somebody in our government were standing up and saying, listen, part of what we're doing in this world is making a world safe for women – um, to walk the streets and to vote in their societies and to drive and to enjoy everything. You know, it's a human rights question, right? Um, and I agree with everything you said about that. But the problem then becomes one of selectivity. Somehow we care about these things as a country with a foreign policy where we happen to have reasons to care, right? Afghanistan might be important or Iraq might be important. But in a country like Saudi Arabia, which isn't just doing these things, but which in an educational sense is a bit of a fountainhead for these ideas and the most extreme of the extreme ideas, but they get a pass. Well, but that, so that that is we should plant a flag there because that I think we will both agree is – uh, really a perverse result of our dependence on their oil. And if, if we could pull that uh, off the table, then th I think things look very different. They get a pass because we need them to be our friends uh, or have needed them to be our friends almost at any moral cost. But then let's talk about that because it's, 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 it's better than putting a flag there. I would make the case that so much of the problems that we are having as a result of, shall we call it, um, um, the, 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 the radicalization of a region has to do with the fact that we're over there and they don't like it. And, and the reason that we're over there in large part has to do with the resources. Oil is obviously, you know, petro, petrochemicals of any kind, uh, obviously the main reason, but there are others. But we're over there. And, you know, I was I was thinking the other day about how we would react. And, you know, Sam, you've heard my shows. This is how I think. But but I always try to think to myself, you know, how would we react in a comparable situation? And it's funny, I was reading not that long ago, a book on the Iranian revolution of 1978-79. And they were talking about how the Shah's secret police in Iran 
we're so good at monitoring any gathering of people that might be seditious, that might want to overthrow the government in any sort of capacity to replace it with any sort of government. And the one place the Shah had a hard time was when these people would meet in mosques and meet over religious purposes because it was difficult for the Shah's government to, you know, crack down on religious people without looking bad to their own population. They had their own reasons for not doing it, but it created a safe zone that involved religion in a way that 30 or 40 or 50 years previously, back in the era where you had guys like Nasser trying to push a, you know, by Middle Eastern standards, secular sort of nationalism, where where those people were sort of forced into the arms of making, you know, in the same way we might have a red dawn scenario in this country if we had a bunch of Islamic people stationing their tanks on our territory because something, you know, under our ground was a national security interest to them. I have a feeling we would be doing things, I mean, we might not be slitting throats ISIS style, but I bet we'd have some guys in big trucks with gun racks in the back that were fond of planting explosives sometimes. I mean, I don't think we would react all that differently. I think the fact that there's a religious overtone to this makes us feel like we would react differently, where if you took the religious overtone out and just put us in the same situation, I bet we're not all that much nicer than some of these people we see fighting what they see as outside colonialists or people foisting their culture or stealing their resources or what have you. Do you think we'd be all that different if the shoe were on the other foot? Well, I think the analogy breaks down a little bit because it's not – we're not stealing their resources. I mean we're not stealing oil from Saudi Arabia. We are just uh, protective of it because we need it. Now, I I think we – that's a problem we absolutely must solve and we should be running a Manhattan project to solve it. And and, and the technology is very much within reach. We could all be driving electric cars. We're going to let that one fade out. But their conversation goes into political entanglements and morally complex situations, which are only more interesting considering the global events that unfolded in the years since that conversation. Much of that clip, an entire episode, branches out from the realm of objective versus subjective moral stances to the complex considerations of political engagements. That distinction is important to highlight now before our next clip. Sam and Carlin may agree on many of their moral evaluations towards the practices of certain cultures, but they have different temperaments and have developed different positions about what we, or anyone else, can or should do about those situations politically. This is a distinction which is often lost when moral philosophy moves into popular political philosophy. Two people can agree that the moral behavior of another group or person is wrong, but can starkly disagree about how best to intervene, if at all. Those differences regarding intervention are ignited by the initial moral evaluations, but are not defined by them. One can be a political isolationist or a strong advocate of military intervention, or be at any point on that political spectrum, and should still be able to hold, and hopefully, freely express a moral evaluation of the action without being held to a narrow political prescription. The transnational examples you heard in the previous clip are obvious, but we can apply this moral versus political distinction in more personal areas. Imagine someone in your friend group shows up to a party with a bruise on her eye, and it isn't the first time. You and your friends have noticed this pattern, and even though she tells you she's clumsy, and simply bumping into a new kitchen cabinet she and her husband have installed, you doubt this explanation and suspect spousal abuse. 
you and your other friends decide to get together to discuss the situation. There may be a wide variety of stances and positions argued for, from direct confrontation with the husband, to speaking to her privately, to calling the police, to confronting both of them publicly, etc. And of course, there are all kinds of considerations, like wondering if confronting the husband puts her in further danger if he's angered, or that a private talk with her goes poorly and she denies the abuse and dangerously isolates herself, or that the husband attacks the intervening friend directly, or even that she actually has been telling the truth about the cabinet, and this accusation insults them both and irreparably damages the friendship. You can even throw in the variable of cultural or religious practice here. Imagine that the bruised friend follows a certain religion or is a member of a spiritual cult. Would this prompt a timid attitude to shy away from intervention for fear of causing offense? Or, to match the analogy to the conversation between Sam and Carlin, perhaps this friend does not even deny the abuse, but claims that it's part of a cultural structure that is an integral part of her life which she professes to desire and intentionally and eagerly participate in, do you override her self-expressed preferences? All of that stuff, those potential good and bad outcomes, the different forms of intervention or non-intervention, all of that is politics. But it's separate from the initial moral evaluation that spousal abuse is a moral wrong, and that hopefully easily agreed upon moral evaluation does not necessarily dictate or imply any of the potential next actions. As you can imagine, this analogy is inflamed by the sensitivities of political discourse when we swap out the spousal abuse of a friend with practices like forced female niqab wearing by the denizens of a foreign religious culture with a massively complex history and compromised relationships to any would-be interveners. But, Keeping the distinction between moral evaluations and political prescriptions in view is tremendously helpful. The point that concerns us in this compilation is how one would ground their moral evaluation of any practice, even those behaviors that carry wide global consensus and strong moral responses like spousal abuse, child sacrifice, murder, slavery, cannibalism, or theft, and those behaviors with cultural and religious entanglements, like female genital mutilation, polygamy, male circumcision, and hair covering, and those culturally ambiguous practices, like strip club visits for bachelor parties, unhealthily thin models and fashion advertisements, cremation of the dead, abortions, or even sibling incest, as John Haidt so kindly presented for us. Let's also keep in mind how attractive it is to have an objective moral grounding for a judgment. If one has this, then they can claim that it is not just their opinion or something they find distasteful, but it is actually just objectively wrong or even scientifically immoral. This temptation to plant a moral judgment in objective, non-anthropocentric ground has been used to justify horrendous behavior. In fact, one of the branches on the moral realist side of our philosophy tree is divine commandment theory. This is a claim that God defines what is morally good and bad and imparts that to us. Being able to claim that you are merely enforcing God's will is a powerful form of psychological distancing 
which consistently appears in history as the terrifyingly dangerous phrase, God is on our side. But for the non-believer, the temptation to ground one's moral claims in non-subjective ground is also strong, and actions can be justified by appealing to the blind forces of nature and evolution to construct the objective moral foundation. This variant of brutal moral realism can surface in twisted forms of eugenics and bigotry. As we attempt to argue in favor of objective moral evaluation, John Haidt would be quick to caution us to make sure that a very powerful elephant has not, yet again, led us to a clever defense of something we badly hope to have in our arsenal. Sam's effort to ground moral evaluation in objective terms requires us to consider how one would measure such a thing beyond our instinctive reactions of disgust or warmness. If we go back to Sam's landscape and consider high ground to be states of flourishing, while lower ground represents suffering, the question arises, can flourishing be measured? Do flourishing or suffering correlate with any physiological states that can be measured with brain scan technology? Is it possible to measure flourishing with something like a ruler in the brain? Well, it's probably not that simple. But it does seem probable that certain physical brain states represent pain and suffering, and others represent flourishing, or at least enjoyment. If we consider the effort of neuroscience to be concerned with the is side of the is-ought divide, we can see how the two realms clearly connect. This line of questioning traverses the field of consciousness and theory of mind. We have a compilation dedicated to that subject. But what is important to emphasize about this path of thinking is that it is open to the idea that science, and in particular the science of the brain, promises to inform and direct the efforts to increase flourishing by finding its correlates in neuroscience. An underappreciated and maybe too obvious ingredient to this conception of flourishing and suffering is the presence of consciousness itself. Picture a monkey climbing a high tree limb. Suddenly, the branch snaps, sending both the branch and the monkey tumbling towards the hard ground. If you're more concerned about the monkey than the branch at the moment, and would obviously choose to catch the monkey instead of the branch, Sam argues that it's due to you assigning consciousness to the monkey and not the branch. Or at the very least, you have far more certainty in the proposition of monkey consciousness than branch consciousness. Sam argues that this is scientifically informed confidence. It is based on a theory of consciousness that assumes that it emerges from certain types of biological nervous systems. All of these things are very much on the is side of the is-ought divide. If I smash the branch with a hammer, you feel very differently about me than if I had hit the monkey. If we imagine a supernova annihilating a solar system which was void of any conscious life versus one exploding in a cosmic neighborhood heavily populated with conscious creatures, we likely feel very differently about the two events. Consciousness, whatever it is, is the place where all of this suffering or flourishing happens and therefore must be present for moral consideration which attempts to increase or decrease those qualities. Our next clip is going to take this effort to minimize suffering and maximize flourishing of conscious beings and expand it beyond human consciousness. This could include the potential consciousness of artificial systems and aliens, 
but in this clip, we'll be speaking about the apparent consciousness of non-human earthly animals. One note before we get to that clip. The challenge of discovering what is moral is daunting enough, but the effort to adjust one's behavior in the direction of those discoveries can be even more difficult. Peter Singer's pond analogy is often branded as being too demanding. Do we really have to give away all of these things we love? Can we really save everyone? When can we be a little selfish? To give some muscle to John Haidt's argument, we possess impressively agile and robust psychologies which allow us to perpetuate and participate in practices that we know we would fail to defend morally if we were pressed. This next clip is with the CEO Uma Valetti, who founded a company called Memphis Meats, which was focused on the effort of cultivating meat in a lab. The company has since rebranded as Upside Foods and is still pursuing the same aim. If our evolved tastes have led us to get enjoyment out of the consumption of animal flesh, but we wish to reduce suffering and maximize flourishing, which both require the presence of consciousness, can we simply keep our treasured consumption behavior but knock out the consciousness from the process? Does this solve the moral problem with minimal behavioral change? We'll start this clip with Sam recounting a moment from a different episode where he called himself out for a failure to look at the details of a global practice he is quite sure is a moral embarrassment that will be judged harshly by our descendants. Also, as you hear Sam lay out a disturbingly accurate prophetic concern, keep in mind this conversation was from February of 2016. This is Sam with Uma Valetti from episode 28, Meet Without Misery. This is such a pain point, and it's it's a pain point that I think um, many people are, are just reluctant to acknowledge given their attachment to and, and perceived dependence on eating meat. I'm now rather famously one of these people who stumbled into a kind of self-intervention on my own podcast where I was talking to the, the psychologist Paul Bloom, and we each put on our short list of things that uh, our future descendants would be scandalized by. You know, as we are scandalized by the, the slaveholders in our recent past, we, we both said that our descendants will be horrified to know what we did with factory farming, the way we mistreated and killed billions of animals in a way that um, we managed to do more or less with a clear conscience simply because we were keeping the details out of sight and out of mind. And, you know, as just in that podcast, I, I more or less confessed my hypocrisy. I, I realized that that I, I found the details morally indefensible, and I found it a kind of a starkly unethical area of my life around which I wasn't really paying much of a psychological cost because, again, I wasn't thinking about it. You know, I was just, you know, food was magically arriving on my plate every meal, and I was, you know, obviously I'm not an idiot. I know, I know what the details are, but I managed to not pay attention to them. And and many, many millions of people, I, I would argue most people, are accomplishing the same psychological experiment in their own lives. And if they were forced to meditate on the details, both the ethical details and just the economic and environmental issues, which perhaps we'll go into, um, I mean, even if, even if you're totally sanguine about killing animals and giving them miserable lives up until the moment of their deaths, it seems to me that very few people can be sanguine about the environmental and health 
and economic implications of, of what factory farming is doing to our world. So it doesn't surprise me at all that there is or, or will be a huge market for this if you can accomplish your aim. So, t- so let's talk a little bit about just what is entailed. W- what are the roadblocks between where you are now and, and what you would hope to accomplish? Yes. So l- let me explain to you the process where, at a very high level. What we're doing is instead of growing a full animal over 12 to 24 months and then slaughtering it and just taking the meat we like and throwing away the bones and the skin and the hair, what we're doing is we're growing the same meat from the fundamental building blocks of life, which are the meat cells. So we identify the best meat cells possible from whether it's a cow or a pig, let's say from a pork shoulder or a top sirloin. And from these cells, we identify those that are capable of self-renewing themselves, and we cultivate them in a very safe and clean environment so that they can grow just like a small plant grows into a larger plant, using nutrients, amino acids, peptides, minerals, vitamins, oxygen, sugars. And once we get the meat to a consistency that we like for the product, we harvest the meat. And if we harvest the meat early on in the process of, of, of growing the meat, then it's more like tender cuts of meat. And if we wait a little bit longer, it's more texturized. So that's a very high-level picture of what we're trying to do. And we feel pretty confident that the science has been worked out in our minds and in our experiments so far, as well as the prototypes we've been able to make. And, and as you know from the Wall Street Journal article, we've completely grown, cooked, and tasted meatballs as well as fajitas. Mm-hmm. And that was a watershed moment in, the, in our company's life because while we knew we could do it, we just did not know how it was going to taste. And once we put that in our mouths and also some of the investors and tasters, it was abundantly clear within a few seconds that it had a very distinct meat flavor that I completely forgot about for the last several years because I was eating meat analogs, whether they were made from plant proteins or texturized vegetable protein. And, and that was a watershed moment. And we knew okay, good, we've got the taste issues solved. And we have to continue to work on the types of products, texture, formulations. So to come back to your original question, what are our hurdles? I think the biggest hurdle for us to get to market as fast as possible is funding and the rate at which we could raise funding. Then the second one is the ability to scale up to a level where we can manufacture this in large quantities and basically align or integrate with the current distribution systems. Because what we're trying to do is to make the upstream processing that's you know, really filthy or not very clean or inhumane be replaced by this new system of growing meat. But we can still continue to use all the distribution, you know, meat, meat distribution, meat formulation, packaging, consumer packaging, goods, and uh, the, the usual route that current meat industry uses. And the third hurdle I would say is perceptions. And this is where your poll and our coincidence of our paths really helped because that 15,000 uh, members that you polled, about 83% of them who said they'll absolutely switch, and a few other polls we've seen so far tell us that perception may not be such a big hurdle, but I'm sure we will have some issues with that where we have to explain why our meat is just as natural as, in fact, more natural than what we're eating now because. We are growing it in safe, clean environments using natural substances. So, for example, there are, there are no antibiotics. There are no contaminants. And I would say this, and maybe other people would also agree with me, that there is nothing natural about the conventional meats we are eating now. Because 
the chickens that we eat now grow six to seven times faster than what they would in the natural environment. The cows give about 10 times more milk than what they would naturally give. And the turkeys are so top heavy that they can't even stand up to breed. And there is nothing natural about that. That's just the state of how modified genetically or uh, environmentally they've been by the current meat production techniques. And to top that off, because they're grown in such intense confined conditions, let's say a thousand pigs in a small barn that's filled with feces or waste material, they have to pump these animals with antibiotics, mm. which leads to antibiotic resistance and superbugs and also sets up the stage for really bad zoonotic diseases like the bird flu or the swine flu we hear about every year. Now, none of that is there in our process. So I would argue, instead of calling this synthesized meat or synthetic meat, this is more a naturally cultured meat mm. because we're letting these cells grow naturally and providing them with a naturally safe environment. And I think our work, and I'm hoping lots of other people follow us, is going to define a new kind of agriculture that will change the way we approach food in the future. I want to get on to the perception issue because I think, it's, I think that's a fascinating one. And, I, and the, the response to, to the poll was, um, I think, very useful there. But, but I don't want people to ignore the very condensed litany of um, concerns, uh, health concerns mostly, that you just went through because, and you know, we don't have to get into it at length, but when you talked about the level of antibiotic use or the emerging epidemics and even, you know, feared pandemics based on our proximity to livestock and the mingling of livestock, for instance, you've got these, you know, open-air poultry markets in Asia where, you know, wild waterfowl drop their droppings or even are caught and sold in, in confinement with chickens. I mean, this is the reservoir of bird flu and uh, all of uh, the subsequent mutations in these viruses that um, you know, we are wisely worried about, which would very, very likely kill, in the worst case, hundreds of millions of people if we had a proper pandemic analogous to the flu of 1918. And that's just one reason why uh, living in proximity to livestock for the indefinite future is a problem. But then you talk about pumping these animals that we eat with antibiotics because of how unhealthy they are and are living in confinement. It's to, it, the reasons to get out of this business are just manifold. And so when, now you're, you're taking us to a new reality where you could grow cells that are really picked for their health and aesthetic properties, never associated with a living animal that can suffer and die. And these cells can be the basis for various formulations of what is, in fact, at the molecular level, real beef or real pork, every bit as real as it would be from a living animal. Before we get into the perception issue, I just want to talk a little bit more about the underlying science. Is there any way in which this is risks being a false promise in terms of the reality of what, in fact, you are culturing? Tell me how this can go wrong, how you can be confused about the molecular identity between the beef cells you think you're culturing and what, in fact, you're producing. Pull back the lid on the vat that you are using to uh, culture these cells. Of course, yes. So I'm going to talk about it from the perspective of what we've done so far, what we've seen. And of course, we have a lot of work ahead of us. But when we take these meat cells, they have a very defined, what we call a phenotype which means when we put them under a microscope and we observe them and we compare them with 
the same types of cells from a slaughtered animal. For example, we can pick it up from an organic store and look at it under a microscope. They look identical. They have the same features that you would expect in the, in the meat, like multinucleated muscle fibers that contract in a basal state and also contract when we stimulate them, identical to how a meat from a slaughtered animal would do. And when we continue to grow them, they keep behaving just like what muscle cells and muscle fibers do. They try to come and join each other, form larger and larger and larger bundles. And as they mature, they try to exercise and they become thicker and do all the same things what normal muscle would do. As we start putting them together into food and creating the, the meat, let's say a small block of meat, and put it on a pan, they behave identical to how meat would sizzle, it would brown, it would smell as we do this, and then finally the taste test. So we feel from what we've seen so far, it is identical to meat. And the difference is the following. Our meat is a lot more protein-packed and lean than what you would get from a cut of meat from the supermarket because there is a large amount of saturated fats that are also there in that cut of meat. And in terms of making our meat safer and healthier, here is one big advantage. We can control how much fat we can put in there as well as what types of fat and lower the amounts of cholesterol or saturated fat, but increase the types of fats that are beneficial for heart health, for example, omega-3 fats. So I think from that perspective, we feel like there's a lot more uh, flexibility we will have than growing a full cow and trying to modify how that meat could be more healthier for humans. That final conversation hints at another fascinating area of moral analysis, the relationship between scientific progress, mechanical invention, and morality. For instance, it's difficult to weigh just how much of a role the advent of agricultural techniques played in the convenient moral awakening about the wrongness of child sacrifice to influence the weather. It seems much easier to discover how wrong it is to engage in this practice when you happen to be able to keep your crops alive with watering techniques during a mild drought. This is sort of a what-came-first, the-chicken-or-the-egg question. Does the moral awakening of wrongness lead to the urgency to discover a moral replacement? Or, more cynically, does the invention itself happen in isolation and allow for the moral awakening to emerge? If America discovers a clean, abundant, and easy energy source tomorrow, would a stronger moral attitude towards Saudi Arabia suddenly take hold? Are we pressed to find this energy source even more fervently to better align our moral knowledge with our moral behavior? This suggests an interesting relationship where invention and scientific knowledge could contain within it the necessary conditions for moral growth and progress. The famous is-ought distinction gets even more complicated in this picture. This introduces a question of moral luck or moral grit. If you happen to be the kind of person who just hates the taste of meat, and therefore you abstain from eating it, is this worth less morally than someone who adores the taste of meat but thinks it's morally wrong to consume it, and therefore climbs a higher psychological and physiological mountain to abstain from it? This is a particularly interesting lens to lay over the moral behavior of earlier generations. If you have little doubt that something like Valetti's cultured meat will replace the horrors of factory farms in the future, Will our descendants, while they munch on their delicious, healthy, non-conscious animal flesh cheeseburgers, 
be too harsh in their judgment of 18th century peasants who had no such technology? There's another well-known maxim in moral philosophy that states that ought implies can, meaning that if you ought to do something, like save all six of the poor souls strapped to the tracks in the trolley problem, then you can, in fact, save all six. In that diabolical thought experiment, of course you can't. What you can do is save either one or five. So ought you save the five? And if you ought to cease eating animals, can you in the year 2022? Well, sure you can. But it definitely gets easier to do it when Uma Valetti is your waiter and places a perfect copy in front of you without the moral downsides. And it sure gets easier to free your horses when the combustion engine puts them out of a job. And in either case, after the sacrifice is lessened or eliminated, and you easily adjust your behavior, you might just pat yourself on the back for your moral brilliance and convince yourself you reasoned your way to this new place. The Sam versus Height tug of war continues in the details of the process of moral progress. So, we know this has all been a lot, but we've only just begun to scratch the surface on the philosophy of morality. To briefly give you a hint at how many threads there are to pull here, we didn't even mention the endless variations and interpolations of the utilitarian concept of maximizing flourishing and minimizing suffering. If we increase the flourishing of a few by a large amount, does this equal increasing the flourishing of all by a small amount? Do we factor in future generations at the same weight as the current one? The variations go on and on. But before we wrap it up and give you a slew of book, film, and podcast recommendations, including fantastic Making Sense episodes that we did not include in this compilation, let's revisit the slippery jargon that gets rolled out with any moral framework. There's a fine line in the language that gets used when we morally judge a person versus morally judge an action. One of the crucial pieces of Sam's perspective is an emphasis on intent and how that pairs with a consequentialist framework. Let's play with two more thought experiments to show why this matters. Imagine a woman stepping onto a public bus. She spots an open seat near the back of it. As she's traversing her way down the aisle, suddenly she trips over a man's foot. She falls and breaks her arm. Now, in one telling of the story, the man had fallen asleep and his foot had slipped into the aisle a few minutes before she boarded. In a different telling of the story, the man puts his foot out just when she walks by, intentionally. It's likely that you feel differently about the man in each telling of the story. The first version seems accidental and unfortunate, while the second seems immoral and evil. But in both tellings, the woman still has a broken arm. Does this mean the consequences are identical and the consequentialist is stuck by condemning both actions as immoral? Well, that's where the variable of intent plays a profound moral role. The intention also suggests a likely future danger. This man may be a serial woman tripper and he must be stopped, while the sleeping man is likely not going to cause more problems. In fact, he's likely to self-correct at the horror of his role in the accident and be extra cautious the next time he's drowsy on a crowded bus. But the question as to whether the sleeping man did something bad is an interesting linguistic one. The outcome clearly was bad, 
but was the man behaving badly or immorally? If we made a slight edit and say that the intentional tripper actually failed to trip the woman and just happened to miss, then you could argue that the consequences of the sleeper's actions were worse than the tripper. But if everyone in society was more like the sleeper than the failed tripper, would the overall consequences be better? This smuggles in a Kantian idea of what he called the universal imperative, which contends that we all ought to act in a way that would be best if everyone acted like that. It's something like the famous golden rule of treating others how you wish to be treated. To drive the point home, we can flip this intention equation with a different clever thought experiment. Imagine there's a burglar who's been scoping out a particular house in the neighborhood. He knows that an old woman lives alone in this house and that she has very valuable jewelry that he wishes to steal. He is quite certain that on a particular night, she is out of town visiting her grandchildren in another city. This is the night he is set to break into the house. He sneaks up to the living room window with a baseball bat. He smashes the window as he prepares to gain access to the house. But suddenly, after breaking the window, he sees her on the couch fast asleep. He must have made a mistake, and she's still home. He quickly takes his bat and runs away from the scene, abandoning his burglary plan. But little did he know, she was actually passed out on the couch because there was a gas leak in the house. When he broke the window, he released the ventilation. The gas escaped through the window. She woke up and quickly closed the leak. Her life was saved. Now, did the burglar do a good thing? The consequentialist may say yes. He reduced suffering for sure. But his intent seems to have been precisely the opposite. So, doing a good thing and having good intent, or doing a bad thing and having bad intent, do not always come in pairs. This style of moral language, with its emphasis on intent, comes close to what is sometimes called virtue ethics, where acting virtuously becomes the evaluative criteria for moral behavior. And what exactly are those virtues? Well, that's a subject for another time, but stealing jewelry from out-of-town grandmothers is likely not one of them. Unless, of course, your intent was to pawn the jewels and give the money to charities that rescued children in shallow ponds who were all dedicated to diverting the out-of-control trolley away from the five people tied to the tracks. And in that case, you may find a few defenders of your moral intent, but a judge may roll her eyes and wonder if you've read one too many moral philosophy books. Here is suggested reading, listening, and watching on the subject of the foundations of morality. The episodes of Making Sense featured in this compilation were episodes 48, 14, 44, 31, 11, and 28. The full episodes are well worth a listen. The episode with John Haidt starts with their rehashing their run-ins and the final one that was sparked by Sam's issuance of his moral landscape challenge. To complete the lead-in to the story before that clip, Sam did eventually select a winning essay and awarded the $2,000 to a philosopher named Ryan Bourne. Sam debated Bourne, but has yet to change his mind and recant his argument. The debate with Ryan and Sam is recommended. That can be found on samharris.org under the title, Clarifying the Moral Landscape. Here are some episodes that are definitely worth your time, but were not included here. 
Episode 13, entitled The Moral Gaze, with documentary filmmaker Joshua Oppenheimer, discusses his incredible documentaries The Look of Silence and The Act of Killing. Episode 16 is with Paul Bloom again, and is the one where Sam encounters his own cognitive dissonance with his participation in animal eating. Sam has struggled to remain vegan since that podcast and still grapples with the gap between his ethical analysis and his behavior. Episode 91, entitled The Biology of Good and Evil with Robert Sapolsky, leans into the neuroscience aspect of morality. And episode 150, which is a live event with the famed moral psychologist Daniel Kahneman, is full of fascinating research into our moral intuitions. Sam continues to be very engaged on the questions of morality and living a good life in the shallower depths of his archive as well. Recent conversations with Kieran Setia, Morgan Housel, and Will McCaskill all get into this area. From Sam's personal canon of work, the previously mentioned book The Moral Landscape and his TED Talk entitled Can Science Answer Questions of Morality are the two places you'll want to start. Peter Singer has written a ton of books on the subject of morality, as well as animal ethics. He wrote Animal Liberation 50 years ago, and recently wrote The Life You Can Save on the topic of the moral duty of charity and aid. He also has a website by that same name, which evaluates charities using a utilitarian and practical methodology. Paul Bloom's book Against Empathy is a must-read, as well as his earlier book Just Babies, which looks at the kind of moral codes we seem to come into the world with. Will McCaskill recently wrote a book called Doing Good Better and helps front the effective altruism movement, which has a lively community of people committed to figuring out how, where, and why we ought to help. Sam himself works in cooperation with several of these efforts and has taken the Founders Pledge with McCaskill's Giving What We Can to donate 10% of both his personal and company profits to effective altruism causes. John Haidt has fantastic books available on moral psychology. His most well-known on this subject is The Righteous Mind, and he's set to release a new book with the tentative title Three Stories About Capitalism, Moral Psychology of Economic Life, which we can safely recommend even before it hits the shelves. Dan Carlin's Hardcore History is a wonderful podcast for history buffs. We can't recommend his series on World War I highly enough. It's called The Blueprint for Armageddon. Clear several hours and get ready to hear Carlin at his best for that one. From the classic philosophy world, we've mentioned David Hume a few times, and The Treatise of Human Nature is a good one to look through. We also somehow made it the whole way through and only barely mentioned Immanuel Kant, who brought us many deontological concepts and was hugely influential to our modern moral structures. His critique of pure reason may be his most important work. Jeremy Bentham is often called the father of utilitarianism, and his most important book on the subject is likely the dryly named Introduction to the Principles of Morals and Legislation from 1789. We promise it's better than the title. If you're looking to try the cultivated meat product from Uma Valetti's Upside Foods, it looks like that may be possible soon. At the time of this reading, the FDA looks ready to make a decision on its availability and, of course, what they will legally allow for it to be labeled when it sits on a consumer shelf. There is predictable resistance from the animal meat industry, which wants it to be called synthetic meat, or an even more appetizing label, vat meat. If you happen to be in Singapore, 
the first nation to approve the sale of cultivated meat, you might be able to find cultivated chicken meat available from the company Eat Just. Just about any good dramatic film is really a complex moral dilemma or thought experiment played out on the screen. So we could recommend thousands of films, but we'll point to just a few which are a bit more explicit. The classic 1950 Akira Kurosawa film Rashomon is a film school standard that holds up for its clever use of multiple perspectives on the same event, which nudges the viewer's moral evaluations constantly. You may have heard the echoes of the classic Robin Hood fable in several of the thought experiments. Children's movies tend to be ripe with moral philosophy for obvious reasons of imparting moral codes to evolving minds. We'll also recommend a 2013 film called Locke, which stars Tom Hardy sitting in the driver's seat of his car for the entire film in dealing with the colliding features of moral duty, pride, honor, shame, and much more. Hostage and triage situations are dramatic, high-wire moral dilemmas that filmmakers love to exploit. Dog Day Afternoon from 1975 is still the standard bearer in that genre, and it takes on an even more interesting moral dimension given the sexual identity politics of the lead character. The 1982 film Sophie's Choice, which is adapted from the 1979 novel of the same name, presents a classic moral dilemma of choosing which child to save. This dilemma stretches back through biblical stories and reappears in film and art constantly, sometimes cheesily, like in the conclusion of the 1993 film The Good Son, and sometimes disturbingly, like in countless sadistic horror films like the Saw series. Clearly, that particular moral dilemma haunts our psyches. Musicians have been writing lyrics about moral dilemmas forever, from John Lennon to Bob Dylan to Johnny Cash. We'll somewhat randomly recommend Bruce Springsteen's 1982 album and masterpiece, Nebraska, which is full of first-person lyrical ballads telling the story of blue-collar, everyday people in difficult moral situations involving theft, murder, love, and much more. Springsteen has stated that the songs were inspired by the class warfare narrative of Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. And if you recall the argument for the terrifying nature of the phrase, God is on our side, take a close listen to the lyrics of Bob Dylan's overlooked classic song, With God on Our Side, from 1964. He clearly agrees. We haven't dipped into the world of graphic art in our recommendations yet, but there are some incredible street artists putting morally provocative pieces into the world. We'll recommend a few of our favorites. The Italian street artist who goes by blue often uses his art to hint at political corruption and the moral ambiguity of war. Herbert Baglioni from Brazil uses shadows to evoke powerful reminders of those who tend to be ignored in society. The Spanish artist Isaac Cordal works with miniature figurines and focuses on the themes of the tedium of work and its blind eye to moral questions. The British artist Stick uses simple stick figures to subtly comment on ideas of gender inequality, bureaucratic coldness, and immigration. And of course, the hugely popular Banksy consistently produces emotionally, morally, and self-critically powerful images that poke a thumb in the eye of the art world itself, global power dynamics, and corporate worship. This episode was edited, compiled, and written by Jay Shapiro, and read by me, 
Megan Phelps Roper. 